Ooh, this castle is damp. How am I going to get out of here? I'm late for podcasting with Kaylin. Meow. Meow. That is a mangy looking cat. Now, hello. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> I didn't know this. Very rude meow, meow. Oh, you must be one of those um, like magical riddle cats that's going to get me out of the castle, correct? Oh, perhaps, maybe. <laughs> There's only one way to find out. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's either that or a map, so... Um, oh, so you want to leave. Well, then answer me this riddle. <laughs> okay, I'm ready. Give it to me. Which state do unicorns like the most? Answer this riddle, and we'll give you a sacred clue to escape the castle. Which state do unicorns like the most? Okay, today's movie is the last unicorn, so that must be the thematic element here in the riddle. Ah. The answer is Maine! Oh, okay. I'll give you one more chance to solve the riddle. All right. Um, yeah, it's it's got to be more riddle-ish, though. That was actually a joke. That wasn't... That was a riddle okay. of my own devising. <laughs> All right, let's do... Give me give me one more. I'm ready. How do unicorns get to the park? Get to the park? Um, yes, if you find out how to get to the park, you'll find out how to escape the castle, meow. Okay, got it. So, get to the park. Parks are green. They have grass. Grass is outside, outside the castle. Unicorns are outside the castle. On a unicycle! I... <laughs> meow, meow. Okay, so... That's <laughs> so, another joke. Well, I guess... Uh, this was a riddle crafted by mine own hand, meow. So, I guess I'm just stuck here with you. Um, all right, I guess you're my new podcast co-host. Do you want to introduce yourself? You answer me... One more riddle. Oh, okay. <laughs> and that riddle is my name, which is Caitlin Cashew. Extremely I'm an animator, confusing. an illustrator, and a very well-groomed cat. Yeah, you're not mangy at all. I, I'm sorry. I must. I was looking at a different cat. Yeah, that was uncool. Meow. And uh, yes, my name is I Remarks. I write and I draw comics. And this is our podcast about cartoons where two lifelong artists and fans Cat. talk and fans talk about the mysterious <laughs> and magical process of bringing good cartoon stories to life. Meow. And you read the next part uh, there, Kitty. <clears throat> In today's episode, we are beginning our four-part series about Rankin and Bass, uh, the production company that has given rise to many strange things over their history. But specifically, we are looking at their cell-animated fantasy films. And we are kicking all this off by looking at a personal favorite to my own, The Last Unicorn. Meow. Welcome to Cartoon Feelings. <laughs> Amazing. We are full on fantasy. The banners are, are flying over the, what do you call the towers on a castle? Like a turret? 
Yeah, there you go. You're a wealth of vocabulary. So I think I'm just going to lean on you. You are. It's great. It's something that I remember at like a young age at like nine or 10 or something using the word bludgeon. Yeah. And a guy like an adult, like college aged guy was like, what? Like was he was really broy and like annoying, but he was like, I think he thought I was like making it up. I was just like, it's a real word. Like, I don't know what to tell you. (laughs) I just read a lot of books. Okay. I'm really nerdy. It's all I got anyway. It's only carried me so far in life. I think it's a great skill to have for podcasting. That's good. I'm finally, it's all coming home to roost. My dad also has this really good story. This is more for you, Ira, than for the podcast, but you can put it in there. My dad loves telling the story about how we had these pool noodle toys when I was like three years old and they had like little plastic animal parts added to them, like on the ends and stuff. And one of them was a dragon. It had like a dragon head and little claws. And he asked me what it was. And I said, it's a Leviathan. And he like (laughs) shit his pants. And he like couldn't believe it. But I am pretty sure I only knew that word from a cartoon that was like Pirates of Dark Water that had Leviathans in it, which maybe that's still cool that I knew that. I just don't think it was, you know, I just loved cartoons. Another great place to learn fantasy vocab. I think you're hitting on a good point where um, the love of this type of fantasy we're getting into. If you don't know everyone, we're, we're talking Rankin and Basses. We're doing a four-part series on uh, you know some of their iconic fan- fantasy films. But it, like learning those big words like Leviathan, <laughs> it, it's just part of like the draw of this these these worlds. Yeah, they're so mystical. Like, Leviathan is an epic word that, like, nothing... We don't have that now, right? What is a Leviathan? Nobody's just, like, bandying that shit about in, like, daily parlance, so... No, you might name your uh, military battleship Le- the Leviathan, or your, like, death metal band. Like in fact, a Halo I think there's Star a band Cruiser? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah, so I'm sure we're going to talk a lot over this series about dragons. I mean, I'm sure you're going to just go on and on about all the types of dragons there are. You're right. And, uh, <laughs> you, you know, we've correct. got, we're going to encounter some manacores today, That's I believe. True. And yes. a harpy or two. But Well, he's not a real manacore, as you'll find out later. Spoiler. <laughs> Spoiler <laughs> for me. <laughs> the most important mythical creature we're going to encounter today is, in fact, the unicorn. Yes, and I have it on good authority that she is the last one. Yeah, so the stakes are high, but I thought I'd, uh, you know, jump into a a quick little unicorn conversation here at the 21st annual Rutherford County Fair Livestock Show. Rutherford County, the county that Charlotte's Web is, in fact, set in. Really? Yeah, so a little Easter egg. Is it an Easter egg if I just tell you midway no. through the state? <laughs> okay, I don't think mind. so. <laughs> well, anyway, we're at the uh, the Rutherford County Livestock Show, and um, there's a unicorn competition coming up. And Caitlin, I'm going to ask you a, a, a task here to just, just get us warmed up here. I like to work in my free time. So we've got a bunch of unicorns exhibiting at the fair today and you've got three ribbons and you need to assign one of these ribbons to uh an exhibitor so your ribbons are for the most self-assured unicorn the most capturable unicorn and the most majestic (laughs) of all unicorns oh no okay 
Now I've slid here in front of you a, a doc, well, whatever, we don't have to pretend that we're not using computers. I've copy and pasted <laughs> some text into I've the Google Doc. I've engraved it on the Blarney Stone. <laughs> and I, I picked about uh, nine classic fantasy unicorns from pop culture. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'd like you to browse that list. We'll go through it in order. So I see here, though, you do have some My Little Ponies. And I will say, I'm intimately familiar with the My Little Pony franchise. In our household growing up, we did watch quite a few of the 80s films. Mm -hmm. But I don't, there are so many of them that I don't remember the unicorns. So I'm just going to categorize those all as one unit, unicorn unit. Well, let's, uh, I'll go through these and you can start thinking. So these are chronological unicorns. Starting in 1940, we have the unicorn from Fantasia's Pastoral Symphony. There's also the uh, unicorn donkey. In fact, let's simplify. Let's just say the unicorn donkey because he's very cute. Yeah. Fun fact about these is that when my sister and I used to watch Fantasia when we were kids, we were really cute. We were so adorable. And uh, what we would do is pick which one we would be. And that goes for the unicorns because I think there are a few. And like the Pegasus babies because they were all different colors. So that was a fun household game that if you have kids today, I think you should play with your children. Which color baby horse would you be and why? We didn't have reasons. No, I th- <laughs> but it is funny the way we, um, you know, color coded characters like you always need to pick your favorite because everybody's got a color. What psychologically is going on here? We're like, there is five baby ponies. They got wings and they're multicolored. Which one are you? <laughs> you have to choose. You really have no choice. But we did it every time. <laughs> Can't say the answer is always the same. I don't know. You know, we're growing. We're changing. Well, that's the colorful unicorn category. I think most of these are just plain old white unicorn. Um, So the 1950 unicorn I've settled on is the one Peter rides into the Battle of Baruna in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. So, you know, a military unicorn there. (laughs) That's true. That's a good point. (laughs) <laughs> the Leviathan of the unicorn world. I don't remember this one much. I only remember him from the movie. I hate to say it. It's been a long time since I read the books. Does he get a line at all? The unicorn? No, he's not a talking unicorn. He's just a a silent, war-torn unicorn. <laughs> that's all I know about him. Pretty cool, honestly. War-torn unicorn. That's something really good. That speaks to me in an intimate way. I'm going to write that down. If I do start a band, War Torn Unicorn. <laughs> oh, that's good stuff. TM, TM. You got to bleep this out <laughs> so people can't have it. No, it's too late. It's on record. <laughs> okay, now a classic 1970s unicorn, the uh, Unico. Do you know Unico? Um, I know Unico. This is very bizarre. It's not a good story. Uh, the only reason I know Unico is because I have this vivid memory of seeing Like, I think, maybe I made this up. I don't think so. I think I saw a DVD of Unico in a blockbuster when I was like six or seven. And my mom was like, no, (laughs) we can't rent this. And I don't know why. So I never got to see it. I think she was probably just tired of me watching it over and over again. Because I'm pretty sure my local blockbuster also like lost their copy of My Neighbor Totoro because I used to rent it every single time until one day they just didn't have it anymore. And I'm pretty sure that was like fakey fake bullshit on my mom's part to not have to watch that movie anymore. 
So maybe she was just done. So I've never seen it, but it's he looks so cute. He's extremely cute. You can um so he if you're not familiar with Unico, he's like a classic I don't know. I get I don't want to say it's a low budget, but he's a a pretty uh kid-friendly like direct-to-video style Japanese unicorn character basically. And I think he's, he's very like very round. Yeah, he's parts. adorable. I could see a parent being like, I can't go there with that. I can. <laughs> I think she was just done. <laughs> she, she had had enough. They're like, look how I turned out. It totally makes sense. I was probably making her watch a lot of dumb shit. So now we're getting up into 80s unicorns and just naturally these unicorns are a lot darker. So we have uh, Gaff's origami unicorn from Blade Runner, of course. <laughs> Metaphorical unicorns. I know. Or was it? I don't know. It's just, it's like the one Edward James almost puts on his desk, right? He's, I guess. Yeah, but then he has the vision at the end and it's a real unicorn, right? So there's the parallel. Right. Well, we have to take both Blade Runner unicorns, one from the director's cut, which is the dream unicorn that Rick Deckard has. (laughs) Okay, so there's your Blade Runner unicorns. And now um, I just picked the 80s, My Little Pony. So your three there are Moondancer, Majesty, and glory. Um, I don't know if they're different in the the reboot. Yeah, they might not even be in it. I honestly don't know. And like the 80s ones were the only ones I ever really watched. Mm-hmm. And even then, I don't remember because there was a like a suburban life show of My Little Pony where it was like they ride a bus to school. And then there was like a fantasy like feature film series one where like a ghost shows up. Or they go to like the haunted carnival. Like that is the stuff that we watched. Yeah. I don't. I have no idea what the overlap of characters was. No, it is interesting to go back and look through the um, the designs of My Little Pony and how they changed to follow like cultural appeal for. I guess like the demographic is like little girls that love unicorns in the eighties. Like the way they just sort of like change the head size or reduce the snout or like big up the eyes a little. Uh, it's just it's just interesting the way we decide what cute is. <laughs> they did a really weird like reboot of it in the 90s, I think, or like early 2000s that didn't really take off. It wasn't popular. But, you know, like old My Little Ponies were really like a little squat and chunky, like yeah. little baby beans. And then these ones were like really tall and had super skinny legs. And it was, they're like exactly the opposite type of design. It was very weird. And it didn't, like people weren't buying it. So, but it is weird to like, that isn't really in line with other like girls toys at the time of like late nineties, like early two thousands. Yeah. But it just felt so alien. I don't know. I wasn't in the market at that point anymore, I think, but very strange move. We have to put a pin in this topic of what an iconic unicorn truly looks like because it. Uh, I would say the My Little Pony unicorn is not what a unicorn is supposed to be traditionally. Like, in fact, the last unicorn unicorn is really what they're supposed to be. They're like a little odd. They're not really horse-like other than like, yeah. you know, the main, the basic anatomy, but they're, they're kind of like long-necked, scrawny-legged. They have a lot of goat characteristics. Yeah. They're lovely. Um, I have more okay. to say on this, but I'll save it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to uh, get too far. We're in the midst of the uh, Redford County Fair Livestock Show, so we've got to keep things moving. <laughs> true. Now, in, into the ring comes She-Ra's trusty 
Unicorn, Swiftwind, also known as Horsey from time to time. This one, I'm sad to say I don't have a lot of familiarity with. Like, I know this iconic design of this uh-huh. creature, but, like, beyond that, I don't know that we really watched a lot of, like, He-Man adjacent properties. Yeah. What do you feel about Swiftwind? Uh, Swiftwind's pretty cool. I believe he often claims himself as his own horse. Like, he's, yes. like, Amazing. he's got his own thing going on. You're like, well, that's cool. I like that he's his own character. You know, he... Has a life outside of She-Ra's adventures, which I thought was important. <laughs> but uh, that, that's about it for my memory of, of She-Ra. I wasn't really super into this stuff other than the toys um, because, I don't know, just the cartoons are a lot more vague in my mind. The toys, I remember like taking my She-Ra toys to the beach and like burying them in the sand more than I remember like watching the cartoon. That's what, but, like, I know that I watched this, but I it just didn't stick like a lot of the other stuff I watched when I was little. A more tragic unicorn. We have Tom Cruise's unicorn from the Ridley Scott film Legend, 1985, which is basically a hornless unicorn because they cut it off, which is pretty sad. You know this unicorn? Okay, good. Yeah, I wasn't sure. Oh, yeah. I don't don't think we've talked about Legend before, but... um, This is... We actually have talked about Legend. It's a long time ago, but like very rarely do I know... Do I encounter people who like have familiarity with legend so it's very occasional for me but i will say oh i have a lot to say about legend we can't do a legend episode it's not no (laughs) saving it for live action feelings Mm -hmm. but legend there's two unicorns in legend at least one of them does get their horn cut off i don't really know what happens to the other one but unless i'm much mistaken it's all like, wink, everything's fine again at the end of that movie. Yeah. So I guess like all's well that ends well, Unicorn gets its horn back or otherwise like innocence would be permanently lost, whatever. Uh-huh. Some might argue that that did in fact happen historically in our <laughs> timeline. <laughs> That's why we have no unicorns anymore <laughs> and why things are so bad. Right. Uh, but yeah, this one... This one's getting a ribbon. I don't know which one yet. But. Well, yeah, we do have to introduce one last exhibitor here. And um, we have Rapidash, of course, from, well, specifically Pokemon Red and Blue on Game Boy. I figured, I don't know why <laughs> I picked that. That was my first memory of it. Other than, I guess, the cartoons, which would have been like 95. But I can't remember Rapidash appearing in no, Rapidash was def- Rapidash is in the opening sequence, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, yeah. Well, that's true. But I just meant an episode dedicated. Yeah, I don't think there was one, which is kind of a bummer. Yeah, Rapidash is freaking awesome. So just to, just to run down through these quickly again as you consider your decisions, and for the listeners at home who have not written this down on a piece of notebook paper to, to keep track, you've got the... Pastoral Symphony Unicorn Donkey, the cute little color-coded donkey. You've got the unicorn from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Peter's unicorn specifically. You have Unico, the one Caitlin's mom hates. You've got the Origami Unicorn from Blade Runner and the Rick Deckard's Dream Unicorn from Blade Runner Director's Cut. You've got the three My Little Ponies, Moondancer, Majesty, and Glory. You've got Swift Wind, You've got Swift Wind from She-Ra, the Hornless Unicorn from Legend, and Rapidash from Pokemon Red and Blue. So uh, take your ribbons, Caitlin, and stick them on a unicorn. 
This would be the best day of my life, by the way, if it was really happening. Yeah. Um, really quick question, which I feel like it's obvious, but we're deliberately excluding the last unicorn from the last unicorn from this, correct? No, yeah, we have we haven't uh dived into that unicorn story yet. Mm-hmm. I felt it was important to address all the other unicorns in the room <laughs> before you are we correct. focused on the last of all the unicorns. So I'm going to get the obvious one out of the way because, okay, so most capturable, I laughed at that and I was like, it's going to be legend because that unicorn gets captured. It's a whole thing. But then I saw Rapidash, <laughs> which has to be explicitly the most capturable one because that's like the whole point. <laughs> so I'm going to say that Rapidash is, in fact, the most capturable unicorn. Perfect. Most self-assured is tough. Mm-hmm. Self-assured. Can you, would you care to define that term? Well, I would, Swift Wind is the one that comes to mind simply because he's got his own thing. He He's very cocky also, which mm-hmm. to me is one of, and it might be the only occurrence of the cocky unicorn because unicorns are a bit abrasive just in general because they're from, you know, they're not human in any way. Well, then you usually don't want to hang out with you. No, they're they're just on a different plane. So yeah. I guess they're all a little self-assured. Um, rarely do you encounter a unicorn that's uh, timid unless they're the very last of all the unicorns, I feel like. So self-assured, I, I just mean, you know, like feels great about the way their hair looks, basically, or their mane. Sorry, unicorns. And like by your articulation i feel like it should go to swift wind but because i don't know swift wind really well like let me just pause at this maybe they're willing to share the award you know i don't know let them figure that out amongst themselves but peter's unicorn yeah having to not only go into battle and it's like pretty scary pretty intimidating i think they're outnumbered it's like Mm -hmm. literally the horde of satan not great you gotta be feeling pretty confident to not only be charging into that on the front lines but also be carrying a child. Yeah. So I assume, I think Peter's unicorn in the Chronicles of Narnia might be one of the most self-assured unicorns. Because I know I wouldn't carry a child into battle. I can picture it rearing up on its hind legs now as you hand it its ribbon. Just It, it looks, looks great, great against the sun. The sun <laughs> glistening across it. The best day of my life. All right, and now the most important. And uh, what color is the most majestic ribbon? Purple? What's the unicorn color? This unicorn. Probably and... purple, yeah. Or like yeah, iridescent. Okay. I would say like a Ooh, pearlescent. Yeah. Okay. Ooh, it's really nice. <laughs> and the other ones are just like blue and red, probably. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the normal ones. Uh, the most majestic out of all these? Okay, I'm going to say that this, like, the hornless unicorn is probably going to get most majestic to me, or, like, the legend mm. unicorns, because, like, those out of all of these ones on the list are most, like, treated in this traditional fantasy way where, like, you're not even supposed to look at them, essentially. And they have this really amazing and very cheesy sort of sequence where you see them, these two unicorns that are like playing together. And the whole time in the background, there's whale cells. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) But it's like, I think, I think the intention is to instill a feeling of the majesty of these creatures that they're like, 
you're not supposed to be like you're so fortunate to be bearing witness to this Mm -hmm. and that they're like fundamentally part of the balance of existence that's very that is all very majestic to me and they do like they're literally just horses in that movie with like horn stapled to their foreheads but uh so not you know the kind of unicorn that you and i clearly agree is like quote unquote the real type of unicorn like the last unicorn yeah. Um, but they still have that that real like physicality and majesty of a horse. So it's your lucky day, legend unicorn. Here's your horn back. And the rest of the exhibitors lower their uh, long necks and slowly meander out of the rink. <laughs> okay, but like the My Little Pony unicorns are the ones that I'd want to go to the ice cream shop with. You know, we could all sit down and have... A cartoon beer. Yeah. Well, thus concludes the 21st annual Rutherford County Fair Livestock Show Unicorn Competition. That's the, the closing. That missing was like a nay at the end. Well, I'll drop that in later, right here. <laughs> You know, do unicorns neigh? Who knows? Who knows? We don't know. Ah, God, now that you mention it, I think they're pretty silent. Yeah, like, I don't think they... You hardly ever even see a unicorn, you know, let alone... Let, according to legend, they have a backing track of whale sounds that I'm assuming they're emitting, probably for just, like, long-form, like, communication amongst different pods of unicorns. Yeah, they probably speak very slowly, like the Ents. You know, it's just sort of like this long, ancient language that we we can't even comprehend it. It's beyond our, you know, time and space. God, these are the conversations that I want to have, that I want to be having. You're having them. (laughs) feels right. (laughs) All right. Well, I think it's time to get into this series. We're kicking off a new four-part series on a collection of films by the famous duo Rankin and Bass, owners of the Rankin and Bass Animated Entertainment Company, I believe. I believe you're correct, sir. Now, I I suppose if you, you, on the outside of this conversation, you listeners don't know who Rankin slash Bass are, we should probably just list off some of the iconic um, productions they're responsible for, beyond, you know, the ones we're going to talk about, which includes today, The Last Unicorn, Next week, The Flight of Dragons, and then yes. a double-parter two-week extravaganza where we get into The Hobbit and then The Lord of the Rings. But outside of those, um, what, are, what are some of your favorite, I assume you have some other favorites, some other Rankin and Bass classics you love? Uh, I mean, I feel like this is the obvious one, but... Rankin and Bass, like most people would know them from your fave Hollywood specials, your stop motion animated, your Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, for example, which I did enjoy as a kid and as an adult find it kind of horrifying in a number of ways, but like also definitely watchable. Like you should watch it, but it's very strange. (laughs) Stranger than you would think. Uh... Yeah, we're really talking about most of my faves, though. A lot of them are kind of TV special format works. Like there's Frosty's Winter Wonderland, which I remember seeing a lot. Um, That was a pretty big one in my house. Well, and another one, if we're going to get into the TV stuff, 
um, that I actually didn't really know about, but they did the Thundercats TV show, which was another big, like, 80s cartoon that was big for, like, me and my sister and our household growing up. Very into Thundercats. Like, didn't really know that was a Rankin and Bass thing. Right. And I think they also, or at least, who's still alive? Rankin, I think? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned that. So on the Rankin and Bass animated entertainment Wikipedia entry, uh, there's like a, the end of the company section under the demise category that says, like, Arthur Rankin Jr., you know, after the dissolution of the company in 1987, he split time between New York City and Bermuda, and he died at Bermuda. And then, like, after that, it's like, Bass became a vegetarian, and he wrote a book about a vegetarian dragon. Ooh. <laughs> like, those are in the same paragraph, and that's literally all it says. So one of them is just like, after the company is over, so-and-so died in 2014, like years later. And then the second sentence is just like, Bass is a vegetarian now. Like, are those two things equivalent <laughs> in the context of this? But I guess he did write a book called Herb the Vegetarian Dragon, which sounds really appealing. Uh, not familiar with it personally, but I'm glad that he went on to do bigger and better things. Now, when I think of their work, I mean, d the aesthetic is deeply embedded in in my DNA, but it's, I put this stuff in the TV category more. And I know, I feel like almost all of this is direct to TV content, even like The Hobbit was, I believe. Yeah, like The Last Unicorn was apparently a theatrical release. It didn't come into my life until it was like, shoddily recorded on a VHS tape by my loving parents. But you're right that I think all the other movies we're going to talk about were TV, like direct to TV movies. Yeah, we might be, we're starting with kind of the peak of their cinematic career in a way, right? Because they had done the Hobbit movies before this, which seems like that's where you would go after, but okay, start with like the biggest epic fantasy of all time and then move on to uh, a book, written by like a 24 year old but um like the last unicorn is probably their biggest most notable feature i guess this is like one of those movies for some people for sure yeah right? like it's definitely that for us yeah like i'll mention my sister a lot probably throughout this just because we watched it together <laughs> most of the time yeah and it is interesting because like the, i think the hobbit is the same way very rarely do I see anybody talking about Return of the King, and I've never met anyone who's seen Flight of Dragons, ever. I've never talked to anyone who's seen that movie or heard of it. So if you have... Until next week when you talk to me, who will have seen that's it. That's true. Finally. But it's what? <laughs> like, that movie just doesn't exist, I guess. And it came out the same year as The Last Unicorn. Like, they were both 1982 movies. Uh, so it's just kind of strange. Like, there's so much overlap between those, in a way, that to me, they're, like, intimately connected. But... Flight of Dragons never happened. And Last Unicorn is like cult classic, you know, people like animator, you know, and like artists, people like love that movie as they should. And in the context of what we've talked about so far in, in these sort of like studio overviews that we seem to be doing, just this just seems to be how it happens to play out. It wasn't really what we planned. But Rankin and Bass, they're more of a production company. Like, this film, and I assume most of their other works, maybe they they put their name on it, they do some storyboarding, they select the source materials. But even The Last Unicorn, they 
don't have a hand in where the production goes once it it starts getting made, right? Like we can get into this with production a little bit more, but like this movie gets shipped overseas to be made. And I don't know what the budgets are on most of these things, but they feel small (laughs) in the context of like other stuff we've talked about. Like Cartoon Saloon is ambitious, probably working on a small budget possibly, but really ambitious and refined and super hyper-focused on whatever that project is at the time. Whereas like just looking at the wiki for Rankin Bass, these guys had their hand in a million different things. Like every year, at least one or two films come out under their name. Yeah, it was a lot of churning, it looked like. Mm-hmm. It's like they, they knew what they were about. And so that's, and it's all really different. Like I didn't really realize that the people who are connected to making the Thundercats cartoon are the same people that were connected to making Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and also like an, a countless array of other stop motion holiday centric TV specials. <laughs> but it's yeah. like, like they had these buckets of like that were all under the umbrella of their brand and they're totally different. It's kind of like we haven't really encountered something like that before on the podcast. Yeah, true. And all that is really to say that to me, this is me kind of telling myself this. I have to put this in a different context than like other feature films we've talked about because it's not fair to say this one looks like shit (laughs) in certain scenes or like the directing is just kind of generally bad in some spots and the framing uh, is awful at certain points. Like these things, I don't think you can judge it as harshly as you can some of this other work because it's just a different type of production. So if you're thinking we're going to just tear this apart, it's not going to (laughs) happen. I would never do it anyway. I like literally physically can't. I love it so much. Yeah. But it is like the the made for TV-ness of it. Although again, this was this was a theatrical release, but like you can see that it's made in these studios that are like that are play in these different worlds. And uh actually what's really interesting to me, uh, and I remember learning this so so long ago, like I was probably still like kid when we were like actually getting to Ghibli movies but what's really wild is you know I grew up like loving this movie from a young age and uh then I learned you know much later that the studio that made this like the Japanese studio that animated this Topcraft which is one of the studios that Rankin and Bass worked with and like did other projects for them as well um but they basically were Studio Ghibli yeah before Studio Ghibli became a thing so like if you've seen Nausicaa and the Valley of the Wind, which I think everybody sort of thinks of as a Ghibli movie because it's a Miyazaki project. But it was animated by Topcraft before Ghibli was a thing. And uh, I think pretty shortly after this movie was made, after The Last Unicorn was made, I'm not 100% sure, but that movie went out of, or that studio went out of business. Right. uh, And it kind of just like Miyazaki and a couple people bought it and sort of like there was some shuffling around of people. A couple people like splintered off and like did their own studios. But that like a significant portion of Topcraft ended up becoming Studio Ghibli. So it's kind of interesting to watch a movie like The Last Unicorn, uh, which is you can sort of see the like the anime aesthetic in it. It's still not quite. There's like other influences in it that muddy that a little bit. 
But it's kind of cool to look at that and think like, oh my God, like these people, like people who animated on this movie went on to be Ghibli animators, like something that I never connected before. Like I would never have just connected those dots on my own. Yeah. And whether that company splintered there, uh, some of the other animators went to Pacific Animation, which went on to do the Thundercats and Silverhawks. So even though it's breaking up, we're still getting, I don't know, that like Rankin Bass flavor, like just kind of iterating into these other spaces, which is interesting because the the look of so much of this stuff is, you know, Disney has like kind of their own thing and they keep everything pretty like close to the vest. But it's just interesting to see like an aesthetic break apart and then kind of appear in a couple different places. And I mean, it's still all kids entertainment and we were encountering all this stuff, but it was it was uh, just the the economics of it is interesting to think about now. Yeah, it's like an evolutionary tree. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So um, now specifically on The Last Unicorn, we must first address the tagline and then we'll give like a quick little like recap here. Caitlin loved, loves taglines. So this is the official tagline. I really do. I think they encapsulate the whole thing. For the last unicorn, we'd like to say there is magic in believing exclamation point. Which I think is true. Yeah. Believing what, you know, whatever. Just believing. <laughs> Capital B believing. Yeah. The ambiguity of fantasy language is as I get a little older and I maybe want more meaning out of my stories or like something a little more grounded, the the illusion of <laughs> saying things like, oh, you just have to believe in, in all this stuff just kind of it starts to make me feel old that I've turned against the uh, <laughs> when you wish upon a star type of like... <laughs> That's a thing, man. It's a lie. It's a deception. (laughs) But it's still a good tagline. So anyway, quick, quick little like last unicorn recap, just so you know what we're talking about. We've got a purple eyed unicorn, supposedly the last of her kind, helped by a second rate magician and a middle aged woman, basically, I guess, who used to love unicorns. They come together to help this unicorn discover regret, basically. At the end yeah. of this movie, all this unicorn gets is a sense of regret. <laughs> the end. And like yeah. an ex. An ex-boyfriend. <laughs> so, you know, all, all these concepts, all these big ideas and stuff are basically attributed to the writer of the book, Peter S. Beagle. 1968, his book comes out. And he is in his 20s. According to my research, I don't know exactly where in his 20s, let's say 24, 25, but that is young as hell to be writing a screenplay for like an animated feature. So good for him. I actually didn't know he wrote the screenplay for this, too. Yeah, he is like he's the voice of all of this whole thing. Um, It's crazy. I think even most of the dialogue is pulled directly from the book. Or there's like some statistic where it's like, did you know 50% of the dialogue is? But I, I was looking back through some of the text because I haven't read this book in forever. But a lot of it is there. Um, so that's kind of kind of a thing. Did you read this ever? A long time ago. And yeah, I don't really remember it very well. It's like probably my sister's favorite book, like thing that exists. 
Probably. She has like this really fancy, like leather bound, like gold inlaid copy of this book. Oh. That's, I guess, kind of valuable. Like she's really, really in love with this stuff. Um, and I do have a copy that I actually got signed by Peter Beagle because a few years ago they were doing like a US tour or maybe like a North America tour going to all of these little indie theaters and screening the movie and then selling like merch. <laughs> from the movies and it was really strange and uh they're kind of a sad random story but he actually passed out signing my book wow which was really wild and then it came out after the fact that i think he was like suing the people who ran this whole thing because of like elderly mistreatment and he was like clearly like really old which is it's blowing my mind right now that he was in his 20s when he wrote this book Mm -hmm. but it does make sense but that was kind of stressful like he literally just stopped functioning signing this book and had to like scribble out what he'd written and like rewrite it wow and it was just a very memorable moment so no i haven't gone back to read the book after that but i do have it yeah it's been through the ringer yeah i mean even before this he had done the screenplay for the lord of the rings for ralph batchke in in 78 so he's even younger at that point which is, that's quite an undertaking. I mean, I'm not sure if anybody else worked on it with him. That was just kind of a little tidbit I came across, but he had his hand in that too. And it, I mean, it kind of makes sense. Like the last unicorn is very like Tolkien-esque, I guess is the phrase. I was going to say, honestly, I've always wondered like why this book got adapted into a movie and especially a movie made in this like very niche circumstance, like a small studio that outsources all their animation to these various studios. Like, why did they make this book? But honestly, Peter S. Beagle just like having a job with the studio where he also does writing for them in addition to writing his own stuff, that makes a lot of sense to me. Like that makes a little bit more obvious why like if they're looking for another story, like another movie to do, you're right there. You've already done so unrelated to your own writing work for them. You can be like, how do you like these apples? And here is my unicorn book. <laughs> it's kind of exa- it's kind of in the same vein as the other stuff. Yeah, totally. And, you know, a couple of years later, we get the, the Black Cauldron and stuff. So, you know, fantasy culture has like seeped down into the kids' entertainment realm at this point. So it could be as simple as that, right? They're like, let's grab something that is going to play to uh, kind of like the D&D crowd and the Tolkien fans. And like some other 80s cartoons we've talked about, this one rides that weird line of like, is this for kids or is this adults? And I guess specifically, this one is a mixed bag, which is probably why it's kind of weird and culty. Its early press material said this was going to be like an adult feature animated film. But then somewhere along the way, they like chickened out. And I feel like you can see little elements where they're like, oh, let's make the butterfly like this because now this is a kid's cartoon. Even though the yeah. unicorn, as soon as she becomes human, is like, I can feel my body dying. Like, they keep that line, but the butterfly is quite whimsical. You know, it's... <laughs> I think the butterfly is like that in the book, though, if I'm not mistaken. Like, he says the same shit, but he looks like a cereal box mascot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The butterfly in the book is just a butterfly. It's not a anthropomorphic, like... Uh, rainbow bright character <laughs> yeah like he pulls out a little like captain crunch hat <laughs> yeah. at one point for no reason it <laughs> there's nothing to do with anything it it and i feel bad 
not liking that because then in Aladdin, I love the genie and he breaks the pop culture rule of like, oh, I'm going to like, you know, talk about uh, late show hosts and do impressions, even though this is like an ancient world. The last unicorn is doing that as well. Like he's referencing pop culture of the time. But for some you reason, know why it doesn't work here, though. It doesn't work because none of the rest of the movie does that. And like Aladdin does have a veneer of being funny. Mm-hmm. Like Iago is just like funny in the humor of the time as well. So like that's why the genie doesn't feel weird in that movie because they're making stupid jokes the entire time even in the serious part. And this movie, it's like, you're, you're exactly right. They're like, this is a terrible thing. This is like a loss of innocence for the whole world. And then you have this weird, this one scene of this butterfly just being like, I'm crazy. <laughs> it's a very strange. I suppose the best way to look at this film without having to run into these problems over and over again of like, why, why, is that it's more just like a, a series of segments that I guess become The Last Unicorn's Adventure. But the tone is like quite different in various ones. And like the character designs sometimes become odd choices. Like, for example, the talking tree or like the harpy. We're going to talk about the tree scene. Right? Like, uh, so it's, since we like to talk about kind of like the behind the scenes of this all, like the storytelling, there seems to be like, a bit of a communication breakdown between whatever the director's vision for this project is and like what's actually being done. It's not quite as cohesive as it needs to be. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, maybe you feel different, actually. I don't I, like, do you feel this story holds together? This is something I was thinking when I was rewatching it, because of course I was going to rewatch it, even though I've seen this like a thousand times. But it's actually it's weirdly bluesy to me. Yeah. This movie, and it has a lot of the same issues. And it's funny because even some of the character designs are like ugly in a similar way that it reminds me of Don Bluth, but I actually feel like a lot of these designs I like more. <laughs> no offense. That's totally a like a particular like a personal thing. Mm-hmm. But like there will be ugliness in the designs of these characters that still has this sort of elegant appeal that Don Bluth is just like all ugly. Like I want him to be uglier, you know, do it again, uglier. Um, but it also has that sort of like 60s, 70s fantasy wizard aesthetic. Like the Brian Froud And like Froud a meandering. Look. Do what? Well, Brian Froud is the guy I think of who did like the fairy books and stuff. Like that's who it evokes for me. That's like the 70s fantasy guy that I think of. Well, and it depends too, because this movie also aesthetically is clearly taking from totally disparate sources like all of the forest scenes where the unicorn is like in her home the forest are so clearly inspired by the unicorn tapestries yeah and then like when they're in the woods like at king haggard's castle and the red bulls chasing them that's like the like roger dean like similar to secret of nim like weird like watercolor wash forests Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot going on. There's not really a cohesive art direction either. Yeah, I see a little like Arthur Rackham who did the watercolor illustrations for like the Sleepy Hollow books, um, a lot of the tree design and like the headpiece specifically of what's her name? Mommy. Oh, Fortuna. Yeah, Mommy Fortuna's headpiece is very Arthur Rackham. He does like these really pointy tree designs um so i was seeing a lot of that there too 
But yeah, it is a real mishmash of just, I guess it's like this aesthetic hadn't really locked in yet. There were still all these different reference points. And, you know, if you look at Dungeons and Dragons at the time, which is like a cornerstone of fantasy culture, because it's pulling from all the different sources and visualizing all that stuff. They hadn't even really locked in their look yet. Their art style was still developing. It's like, what level of detail do we give to these creatures that have only at this point, you know, existed in stories, like through description, or in like one-off renderings of them in different books? Like, you know, it must be hard to be an animation studio and be like, what's the iconic look for this creature? Um, so they're probably like fumbling their way through some of the stuff in the, the early stages of production. In a way, I think that shows and it's one of the reasons I like it. I mean, obviously, I just responded to it as a kid. I think that's like a lot of people can relate to that. But there was just something. So they are just like, huh? like this could be cool. And like some of, some of it is really cool. That's like what's so strange is that visually sometimes this movie looks really good. And then visually, I'm like, what? Like, this character is so off model. Like, did you even have a model? Like, right. I don't There are scenes at the beginning of the forest where it's like washed in a specific color to show the time of day. Like, mm. it'll be all yellow in the background because it's the morning or something like that. And with that inspiration of the tapestries, it's really beautiful in a lot of parts. Um, or there's like this scene where she's kind of. It's all blue and it's night and there's a big full moon in the sky and she's like walking over the hill and she's sort of like far in the background. And like, that's a really beautiful, like well-composed shot. But then, you know, there's other times where like the character, a character's emoting or something and their eyes are like sliding all over their head. And you're like, okay, it's just all over the place. <laughs> yeah. The the blue, I'm glad you brought up the blue of this movie. Um, apparently, this is kind of like a limitation of the medium at the time where I guess it was really hard to use blacks in their animation process. I don't know if that's specific to like the studio they're working with. Cause if you think back to Disney work at this time and long before blacks are very prominent, but for some reason blacks weren't working for them. That's why you get so much blue, especially at night. And I think it works really well. It, it adds like a melancholy to it. Yeah. That's funny. Cause I was like, it looks way better than using black. So it, it was probably like maybe a choice, but also maybe just a happy accident i'm not sure exactly but uh there's just something about 80s color saturation that i think resonates in you know this has blue in the same way rats of nim has like purple and red for me even though this has a great red as well with the bull i like the bull's red love the bull i always love the bull anytime we were like playing pretend these characters i was the bull too i don't know i love unicorns i'm just saying he looks really strong i like that he has little uh sharp teeth Mm -hmm. for no reason that's really appealing to me pretty good character yeah i think they're in general pretty ambitious with character designs like king haggard the level of detail on his like rusty old armor it's quite intricate i mean he doesn't move a lot <laughs> so i guess that helps it's kind of balances it out like you don't see like the chains on his armor the little like ringlets moving around or anything but i, I don't know i kind of just appreciated the the costuming of a lot of these characters and um, it holds up pretty well. and looks very cool. All the stitching, like, you know, you see like the patchwork on their ragged robes and stuff. Yeah. Like they're wearing clothes. It's not like he has a shirt and like a tunic and a belt and that's it. It's like, they have like all of the folds and everything mm -hmm. 
Or like he's wearing like a cloak over it too and it's got all the wrinkles in it. Like it is very fantasy art. Like as much as they could capture. They also got really into hair in this movie. It's not like hair effects where it's like every strand. But they have this certain way of drawing hair that's very curly and like really expressive. I mean, the unicorn itself is a great example of that. And it's all the time everywhere, like moving. And like they use that a lot. It's very kind of Art Nouveau. Like it it flows like grains in wood or like water, like the way you would illustrate those like kind of natural elements. So yeah, I think it works really well. And it's probably maybe the most iconic thing for me in this is just the way the unicorn's hair looks. It's extremely distinct. So before we get too far into any specifics, storytelling. This is basically just like a bunch of allegory, which is how these stories are generated. And it's like what where their appeal comes from and also where the creativity comes from. By like working in allegory, you can kind of pin together these interesting ideas. But I feel like, I don't know if it's just the fact that this is a young author or what, but the characters in this story and like stories like this, I find really hard to engage with. And when we get into the plot, I'll like be more specific about how there would be a million editor notes on like the protagonist of this story. like. Who are we following? Why do we care exactly? Are they likable? Do you feel any of that? I know you have such like an emotional connection to this movie, but when you sit down and watch it, are you like, I just wish these characters, I was a little more invested in like their journey? Honestly, I don't think I ever think about stuff like that. So that's another conversation we should have at some point, because sometimes the way that we both talk about story stuff is really different. Yeah. And sometimes it's really similar. Because, like, I can't think of a movie where I feel... I mean, I guess I know when I'm bored or if I, like, actively <laughs> don't care about what's happening. There's something like that. But, like, a great example to end, like to bring back the Bluth comparison is, like, I felt that same way. Like, watching this movie as an adult, I feel that. And just like watching Secret of Nim, I don't really care because I have all of these other reasons to be watching it and, like, childhood nostalgia and, like, whatever... But there's something that makes me respond to both of those movies, like this movie and that movie, that it like, that's not the thing for me. And maybe like if I saw this now, how would I feel about it? Maybe not the same because it does have that. I'm like, what even is the story? But for whatever reason, I don't really care. And I I think that's maybe also what defines cult classic movies too, though, is like that they're not good. But there's for whatever reason, you're like, yes. And I don't know why that is. Because at the same time, like, why as a kid did we love this so much? Like, why? What is the reason for that? It's not like we saw other movies that we didn't care about, right? So I don't know. Like, I don't have an answer for that either. Because it goes for a few movies that I like. And then you can never know how would I feel if I watch this now. But it's definitely not how I would tell a story. Like, totally not. Like, I don't really understand what the point is but for some reason it just works for me anyway yeah i mean i like this sort of thing and i maybe i'm i'm reflecting on it in my own life experience where when i was telling stories in my 20s it's it's not even an age thing actually i think it's where you're at with your storytelling ability like this sort of story comes to you earlier in your career because i don't think you know how to look and empathize with characters 
well enough yet. I think one of the first things you learn when you're writing is you learn word, world building and you learn to build up those resources resources that like flavor a story. Like this story is all flavor. When it begins, the unicorn just appears for the first time. She has no backstory and that's fine because that's kind of like, I don't know, she's like a mystical creature, but she doesn't she seems to have just walked on the screen for the first time, which I would say is like weak storytelling to not have her feel like she's emerged from outside the frame. Like literally she just like was born in the box on the screen. And I think that's a symptom of like, I'm a young storyteller trying to figure this out. I don't know how to enrich this character in the interesting ways that will come to me as I like grow. So that that's just something I was uh, thinking about because it was something we hadn't really talked about on the show yet. Um, like these different variations of story and how fantasy is like very much in this one box where you can kind of be like, that actually doesn't matter. And I can be fine with that, but I also still think about it when I'm watching these movies. Yeah, I totally know what you're talking about. And like when you're young, like when you're a young storyteller that you write things in a certain way, potentially because you're like in your early stages And that resonated to me. It's not something that I thought about while I was watching this, but it's just like, it honestly reminded me of that. I used to write a lot more when I was younger and thank God none of it exists anymore because it was trash. But like, I wrote like hundreds of pages of like fantasy book and like whatever, like made up stuff and it wasn't good. But the reason it wasn't good was because it was basically just whatever I was reading. Like it wasn't literally that, but it basically was. It was just like all the elements of stuff I like. And that's because you're like you are compelled to tell a story like or like to be a storyteller so you write like you know a lot of people feel that way and that's like where it begins but you don't like you're writing because you're inspired you know and there's no foundation that you have personally to do that so it's just something that's very relatable to me and I don't know like as you were saying that I was like I can think of a few reasons why I don't even think this is the case. But for example, like what you're saying, like maybe the unicorn feels this way because the unicorn's more of an idea than anything else. So it doesn't really mm-hmm. need to feel lived in like or like something real because it's not. But like whatever, like I can come up with all these justifications for why something is this or that way. But I totally like that's a real thing. It, like I'm going to write a book. <laughs> what do I write? Well, I've been reading a lot of like sword and sorcery stuff. And like I watched... You know, I watched The Last Unicorn recently, so maybe I'll tell a story of the unicorn. And you just, like, write stuff that happens to your character. Like, you're just writing because you want to. That's There's nothing wrong with that. Like, that's great. I kind of wish I was still doing that, at least. Um, but it's just not, like, it won't have the backbone of something where you are, like, having an editor and then being a little bit more intentional about whatever and maybe that's something you figure out along the way or maybe you just don't write anymore maybe that was like a stepping stone for you but that's definitely that's definitely a real thing that exists this just makes me want to talk more about storytelling in general yeah and i don't i don't um i hope it doesn't sound to somebody out there like i'm dismissing fantasy storytelling because when you describe it i think it is beautiful the incentive to like just reach out and start to pull together a story from your influences. And I think it's great to have stories that are pieces of like fairy tale elements and letting it just be like this emotive journey to go through. Because actually, I think that's what fantasy 
storytelling mostly is like the unicorn in this movie appeals because it, it it's like a mirror for a sense of self it's like a certain type of mirror for you to look at and be like i feel this character's like identity crisis or something when i look at it like these creatures are asking you to like look at yourself when you see them like that's like the the draw of them like they evoke these like thoughts and feelings and i think that's important but i also you know wonder like, what is that all I was like connecting with? And is that all the producers were thinking about when they made this? Just it's funny to, you know, watch Pixar and these character driven stories. And even when they deal with fantasy, like in Onward, it's from outside of the fantasy world. It's like these characters are having like a grounded journey, but they're like passing through these realms of fantasy. Whereas like this movie is in fantasy. They're, they're just different. Maybe it's, uh, they're just different things. You know, they're like different genres of music. I can't really like, I guess it's not fair to like pin them up against each other at all. You know? Apples and oranges. Yeah. Dragon fruit. <laughs> <laughs> Should we talk about the cast really quickly? Yeah, I think we have to. Just because I feel like this movie is a totally buck wild cast. Like, Mia Farrow is the unicorn. The the prince, Prince Lear, the like strapping young lad who falls in love with the human form of the unicorn is voiced by a young Jeff Bridges, which is really wild. Doesn't sound like him at all. It's so wild. A funny note on the Jeff Bridges thing that I saw was he was willing to play this role for free. That's how much he was invested. I'm like, this character what a homie. That has kicks nothing ass. going on. It's good. Yeah, good for him. Like he wants to be in a, a cool movie, I guess. Which makes me wonder, I'm like, oh, these were hot properties. Like being a prince in a fantasy story was a massive deal. And up through the 90s even. I mean, like princes were where it was at. That's so funny. That's hard. It's just hard for me to even visualize that. Um. Who else we have? With Alan Arkin is Schmendrick the magician. Yeah. Which I just think some of these people, it's just like, what? Like Angela Lansbury is Mommy Fortuna, the carnival witch. And she's great. She has a great job. And Christopher Lee is King Haggard, which is very iconic. Like it's on he's honestly perfect. I mean, has he ever done a bad thing? Like, probably not. I don't know, but like No, he's a master. Saruman yeah. before he was Saruman, and like even more pathetic and like weird. His name is literally King Haggard, which is really funny to me. And he goes all in. I heard that he uh, highlighted like the text of the book when he like showed up on the first day. He's like, these lines will be in this movie and I will say them like he's he's truly committed. I mean, he when he his character comes in, he truly adds some weight to this project for sure. Yeah, I like that. Um this is like a pretty easy poll because there's just a little bit of editorializing in the Wikipedia page about the cast where it talks sometimes about how Peter Beagle feels about the casting. <laughs> and by Christopher Lee, he said, uh, like Peter Beagle described Lee as the last of the great 19th century actors and either the most literate or the second most literate, fair's fair, performer that I've ever met, which I think is amazing. Like, that's so funny. And it's just like, He's either the most literate or the second most, but like really <laughs> up there, like one of the top. I'm like, yeah, I totally agree with you. Yeah. Um, I want to shout out two more, I guess, because Rene Auberginois is the skull guy, the drunk skeleton guy that shows up at the end that was legitimately terrifying to me. Um, you will know him from being 
uh, I think Odo in Star Trek, like a Star Trek character. Like he's been around. He's in all this different stuff. And then this is just a fun little fact that I noticed this, like just perusing the cast list. But Paul Fries is this bit character, Mabrook, the court magician who's in it for like two seconds to just be fired by King Haggard so he can hire Schmendrick. And he's like, bye, idiots. Like, joke's on you. I'm awesome. Bye. Um, but he was also the guy that did the narration for the Mars and Beyond Disney short. Oh, hell yeah. Nice. And he's just like one of those guys that has that iconic voice. He doesn't sound the same at all in this movie. But I just thought that was neat. Paul Fries. You, y'all probably know him. I love that fact. And the one other fact. I'm just like blazing through now. One other fact that we haven't talked about yet is that this movie is sort of a musical-ish. But all the music was done by the band America. <laughs> Yeah. Who viewers at home, listeners, listeners slash viewers at home will know from their iconic horse with no name song, which I guess is really appropriate for a movie about almost a horse. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's all like original music. Uh, a lot of them are about unicorns specifically, or what it's like to be a woman, or uh, falling in love with a strapping young prince lad who is Jeff Bridges. Like it's a full album. Check it out. Now, I don't know if this is true or not, but so Jeff, Mia, and uh, not Christopher Lee. He, does, he doesn't sing any songs, but Jeff and Mia, I'm <laughs> just calling them by their first names. They, they're singing the My fucking friends. songs in the movie. And I don't know, was that a budget thing? Like, do you have the actors just do a, you know, a rough take and then you come in with some professionals? It's not like they're bad, but it, it does kind of stand out for sure. Especially no, with Jeff Bridges. this is a Bridges. great point. Now, do you think it was supposed to be dubbed over and just never got done or what? I don't know. That's a great question. Honestly, haven't really ever thought about it. But like, you're right. It's weird because none of these people are known for their singing. Maybe it was one of those things where all of them were just like, yeah, we'll take a stab. Like, yeah. we'll see if we can also like have a singing career and just like, no. And I mentioned this to you last time and I'm starting to think it was more of like a little like urban legend that my sister and I made up. Because, so let me just say, if you watch the movie now, like, for example, on digital, you can get it on Amazon, whatever. Um, I think I have, like, a Blu-ray or a DVD version lying around. But I swear watching it now, even on these digital platforms, there's, like, VHS distortion. And it does make me wonder, like, what print did they, you know, how did they make this, like, digitize this version? Because it looks really good. It looks better than it looked on our VHS tape. Yeah. But our VHS tape had such significant distortion Uh, In the audio and the visuals, Uh, we just like beat that thing to hell. (laughs) Uh, One of the songs in particular is like a Mio Ferris song, and she sounded awful. And like as kids, we were like, this song is particularly bad. And I think it's this like now that I'm a woman, I'm singing about how I'm forgetting my unicorn self, whatever. It's all Mia Farrow. And it was awful. And listening to it now, it's not really that bad, but it's still not great. As you've mentioned, the songs aren't good. Um, and we thought, I think watching it on DVD for the first time as semi-adults, we were like, oh my God, did they like re-record this? <laughs> because it was so shitty before. And, um, I'm starting to think we made that up because I actually tried to find like information about that and I couldn't find anything. So maybe, maybe that was just an explanation for like really bad distortion, but it's still pretty bad. And I would just, I'm wondering if anybody can corroborate this, like it's, the singing is not good. I don't know. Jeff Bridges is fine. Like, at times it's serviceable, but it's never like, I'm going to 
you know, this is like my new favorite, like iconic. It doesn't level it up, really. And um, yeah, I mean, Jimmy Webb, I think he did a great job. America, solid band. Now, here, here's an important question for me to know the answer to. Pitting these two songs against each other, which one's your favorite? Last Unicorn by America or Bright Eyes by Art Garfunkel from Watership Down? Oh, it's going to be Last Unicorn for me. Okay, I'm a Bright Eyes. That makes sense to me. (laughs) I mean, it's not like I think a lot of that is just from the nostalgia, but like the Last Unicorn song and then it's playing over this. Honestly, I really like this. It's like dated a little bit, but I still think it looks pretty cool. But like the opening sequence of this movie is all animated versions of the famous series of medieval tapestries about unicorns. Um, They're very iconic. There's a bunch of them. The last I checked, they are viewable in the cloisters at the Met in New York City. Uh, But I don't know. I mean, I guess they might be open. I don't know. It's still the pandemic time. But when you can go to the cloisters, if you're in the New York City area, check them out. But there's quite a few of them. And there's it's really cool how they did it. There's just like the unicorn in the tapestry. You're like drinking at the fountain surrounded by all these animals. And then, you know, they'll have her animating like running through the woods, but it's still all in this tapestry style. And I love that. I think that was really formative for me. Yeah, it fits in. There seems to be this idea, you know, books are still like a real commodity and like magical artifact in this era of human history. Now, who fucking cares about books? But it's, uh, you know, Rats of Nim kind of does this the same way where the the movie kind of fades in and out of being a storybook. Like it'll turn to like an illustrated page. And like Disney always did this where it's like the book opens and we dive into the story. And this one, I feel like it's in the same um, spirit of that where you're like, you know, these fucking amazing tapestries, we're going to walk into one and uh, there's going to be some songs by the band America. And America is also going to be there as well. <laughs> yeah, we're all there. All your favorite Western uh, iconic. <laughs> yeah, like art I'm figures. really wondering where, like who pitched that as part of the idea? And like, was it purely there's one song where the unicorn leaves her forest to go on this quest and there's it's like a montage so you're like seeing her walk through all of these different locations and that's it it's just a visual montage of her traveling and then there's a song by america talking about how she's walking down man's road and all of this stuff and i was like did you do the you were like they did horse with no name they walk through the desert that's that's something we should put that in this movie it doesn't really sound the same but it just feels like it has the same spiritual source i guess it just it's just one of those things that made sense at the time it's like the same thing that like in 2016 shakira made sense for zootopia you know like yeah but that totally makes sense ira well to me i think america makes sense in the last unicorn in the same way like art garfunkel makes sense in watership down it's it's just like the these things aligned for whatever reason Right. I'll be honest. Like I'm not above if I was directing a movie and I wanted to meet a band. Yeah. I'm not above like forcing them to do the music in my movies. So I'm not saying that's what happened. But if I was directing Soul, for example, I would be like, you know who'd be so great for this jazz movie? Trent Reznor. Let's get him in the studio. Yeah, and they're like, Caitlin, you've said that for like the last eight things we've asked you. (laughs) Even when we asked what you wanted for lunch, you just I was like, you know what I'd love to have for lunch? Trent Reznor in the studio. Honestly, I don't have that power, so. Not yet. Not yet. 
why don't we take a why don't we take a quick travel montage, aka a break for me and the listeners, and then we'll come right back with all of the innards of this film. Then look into the sky where through the clouds a path is torn. Look and see her, how she sparkles. It's the last unicorn. Welcome to The Last Unicorn Theater by Kaylin Kaju, featuring Ira Marks. Once upon a time, there was this unicorn who lives in a woods somewhere. One woods somewhere. I guess Europe? It's unclear. I don't know if that's ever specified anywhere. Fantasy, environ, very idyllic. And she learns from two two encounters. One is two hunters vibing in the woods, and they're like... One, one hunter says to the other, basically, like, you know these woods are haunted by a unicorn, right? <laughs> and the guy's like, what are you talking about? And he's like, yeah, that's why it's always spring. And there's always animals, and it's great here. And the guy's like, yeah, we better get out of here. We don't want to mess with this. So they leave. And the unicorn hears that, and she's very intrigued. Because uh, the guy's like, by the way, you're the last one. <laughs> he's leaving. And then she also encounters a butterfly who is very colorful in many ways. And he sings her a bunch of songs and then tells her that all the other unicorns got chased away by uh, some kind of creature called the Red Bull. And she's like, what? That's weird. That can't possibly be. Uh, So she's so intrigued by this idea. She hasn't seen any other unicorns in time immemorial. So she decides that she's going to leave and see if she can get to the bottom of this. Uh, So she leaves. And on her way, she basically has a bunch of random strange encounters slash adventures and she befriends a few people uh, and then finds out the real meaning I guess of mortality so she meets her first encounter she falls asleep uh, on the roadside and an actual witch a magic witch named mommy fortuna comes across her casts a sleep spell on her she can see that she's a unicorn. Something that comes up a lot in this universe is that most people can't tell a unicorn when they see one. They just see a horse um, because of their like weird mortal non-virgin eyes, I guess. I don't know. It's not explained. But she can tell. And she boxes her up in a carnival show. And she even puts a fake horn on her so that passersby can identify her as a unicorn. But Schmendrick, the magician, is also part of this coterie. And he is, he can see that she's a unicorn and he is like a pure soul. And so he decides that he's going to help her bust loose. So he sets her free. They set all of the other animals free, none of whom are magical. They're all like illusions. And uh, except for one that is a real life harpy who does kill Mommy Fortuna. That's just sort of an aside. Mommy Fortuna doesn't make it beyond this part in the movie. So the unicorn and Schmendrick carry on their journey. Then they are waylaid by the, uh, this is kind of an interesting little inclusion, the Robin Hood analog. I guess they even specifically reference Robin Hood, although this character's name is Captain Cully and he has this band of like vagabonds and they, they kind of kidnap Schmendrick. I get they, you know, they come upon him in the forest and they are like, you're coming with me for some reason. And then they all sort of end up vibing together <laughs> for, for one reason or another until Schmendrick magically accidentally compares them to the actual Robin Hood. Doesn't go over well because it kind of disrupts Captain Collie's whole like faux 
brotherhood situation. And he is able to escape with uh, Molly Grew, who is one of the people in Captain Cully's band. Um, she's just like this middle-aged like cook um, who has found her way with this group one way or another. So she also falls in with Schmendrick and the Unicorn. They carry her along their journey. And they come to rest at the castle uh, of King Haggard. It is unclear exactly what is going on here, but we do, it's like King Haggard has a certain amount of territory. I don't know if he, you know, the whole country that they're in. Apparently it's very dangerous. Schmendrick goes out of his way to be like, we never came within miles of here. (laughs) It's not clear why. And through uh, some various interpersonal relations, there is a there is a romance element here with the prince, Prince Lee, Prince Lear, King Haggard's adopted son, uh, with the unicorn. There's we find out, you know, some magical information about the provenance of the Red Bull, who does appear to be at the behest of King Haggard. And we find out finally what happened to all the unicorns. And uh, just to spoil it a little bit here, but there is a happy ending. And all the unicorns, which had in fact been squired away into the depths of the ocean, are able to be liberated. And King Haggard's castle actually fully collapses into the sea, which is very satisfying, (laughs) if not a little bit nonsensical. Uh, And there's a really cool showdown sort of with the unicorn and the bull here at the end. So once all of that is concluded, the unicorn goes home, different, changed. Uh, And I did, I left out a whole kind of important plot detail that I imagine we'll be talking about, which is uh, in a moment of danger, uh, an encounter with the Red Bull, Schmendrick, to save the unicorn, transforms her magically into a human person. He doesn't quite, you know, intend to do this. His magic is very chaotic, um, but he's just trying to save her. And he's like, you know, using my magic, like save this unicorn. And so she ends up turning into a human and a lot of hijinks ensue. This is kind of the, I don't know, the twist of the movie, I guess. <laughs> sure, yeah. Is that she spends the last third of it being a human and then grappling with human feelings, which really is like, you know, do I kiss the boy or not, I guess. Yeah. That's a whole thing. So yeah, and by the end of the movie, she is back to being a unicorn, but she's forever changed by her experience being an immortal body, like having immortal experiences. So, Ira. Yes, Caitlin. Proceed. What do you have to say about this iconic film that is very concrete and <laughs> adheres rigidly to the storytelling format? Yeah, there are zero zero holes in this plot. Everybody's motivations are ex- extremely clear at all times. Um No, I love this fucking movie, too. That's why we're doing it, everybody. So give me a break. I can't sit here and, like, remind you (laughs) that I love this shit. I like this more than you. I am doing a show about it. How many shows have you done about The Last Unicorn? God. Well, like, Peter S. Beagle is literally (laughs) listening to this podcast. I'll mail it (laughs) to him. Okay. I'm sure he doesn't have the internet. I'll just mail it directly to him on a bird CD. That's probably true. So anyway, I fucking love this movie. But here we go. So all I'm doing here is trying to figure out what the world was like in 1968, where this like tale of whimsy is, this is just, this is peak entertainment at the time, right? Like this is what everybody wants. Everybody wants a post-Tolkien story that dips into like medieval Western lore and fantasy. 
So I'm on board with all that. This unicorn comes on the screen and we get a voiceover where it is completely unsure what is going on in all realms. It doesn't seem to know how old it is. It doesn't seem to know any other unicorns. It doesn't seem to know <laughs> anything that's not told to it directly by two like random passerbyers. This is just like one of the oddest beginnings to a movie because I mean, like, is there no, you don't need a Walt Disney to say like, why do we care about this character? So what invests you in this story at the beginning? Is it simply just that it looks great? It like kind of looks a little like Sleeping Beauty or, you know, it, it, or is it just that it is a cartoon and it's like your only VHS tape? What's drawing you in like from these first moments? Do you remember? Well, to answer your question, as a like three-year-old child, there is a unicorn. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and that's all it takes. I don't know, though. No, here's my bigger question. What does a unicorn mean to you? Because I think that's the core of this movie. A unicorn must mean something to like the person who loves this film. So what do you, like, why do you love unicorns? Can you answer that? I think I might be able to. That's an interesting question. I do. So this answer will touch on some stuff I think that I will have to say about the movie in entirety. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it doesn't only apply to unicorns. I mean, I do have a particular love for unicorns, but in the same way that I have a particular love for certain types of magical creatures. Like I feel the same way about dragons, which we all know I'm very passionate about. Uh, But it's like, okay, if I go deep enough, I have to say I don't know because I don't know why I love fantasy so much as a thing. But I do like I love all fantasy stuff. And I always have like we from my anecdotes in this very podcast, you can tell like I just came out the womb being like, I love Leviathans, for example, (laughs) any, you know, I love unicorns, love dragons, like Pokemon is really cool. Like anything that's just like not real and especially animals. I clearly, if you know anything about like the art that I do or anything, you can tell that I'm very passionate specifically about like biology and animals and evolution and all this stuff. Um, So maybe it's something to do with that. And like, I think the appeal of unicorns to me and that's something that this movie does go out of the way to kind of touch on is like, when you're a kid, you think maybe that stuff could be real. It's definitely not, which is really disappointing. (laughs) But when you're a kid, you think, I haven't seen a unicorn but they're very special and they're very unique and they're like rare and they could be out there somewhere. And that's the appeal is like this, this magical, like the unknown, the undiscovered of the world or something like that. Like we also had a book when I was a kid that had a lot of, uh, it was like a, like a glossary of dragons that live around the world, obviously fake, but it, you know, it was like, and this is like the ice dragon that you only find in this particular environment. And here it's traits and qualities and stuff like that. Uh, like a beast manual. And I loved stuff like that. Cause it makes it feel like you could go out and find those things. And I think that's what the unicorn is for a lot of people. It was something special that people wanted to see. Yeah, it's like an embodiment of human longing. And I think the way these things are very real is that they are they're like evidence of like the human urge to like understand and connect with like the natural world, right? And the unicorn is like just one of those creatures that as the world expands and is like overpowered by human agenda, these are the pieces that fall away. And then like, how do we talk about that? It's like, we generate 
these symbols of it. So like the unicorn wouldn't emerge unless humans had like this longing or sadness or like sense of loss of purity or like, you know, kind of a a shame for disconnecting with the nature around them. I don't know. To me, that's like, I would guess that you love unicorns knowing other things about you because it kind of fits in with like your empathy for like the natural world or like a sadness for a loss of something that like we've destroyed or like taken away from the planet. Like the unicorn is to me, the ultimate sad, like allegory. <laughs> it's it's like such a tragic beast because it's, it's like separated, yeah. right? Like they don't have friends, like they don't really have community. They're kind of just their own entity. Well, no, that only make, like, it makes them kind of appealing in, Away, like in this movie, there's a few points where it kind of makes it very clear that she's totally fine with the way that she is. Yeah. and maybe that's why they have her have two different situations where people are talking about how she's the last unicorn to finally get her to actually check it out because, like, she doesn't need to know that she doesn't need to hang out with other unicorns. So she's just like a hundred percent fine. But there's also there's a scene in this movie with Molly Grew, who again is this middle aged woman who's basically been like roughing it in the woods with like the poor, poor man's Robin Hood, who clearly is kind of like not a great dude. Like people are happy to leave him. They don't actually have this, like this wonderful mythical brotherhood feeling between all of them. And when she finally meets with the unicorn, she breaks down and gets really upset because she's like, like, how dare you show up to me now after everything that I've been through and I'm of this age and I've experienced all this hardship in my life, like... When I was like one of these, you know, like the young maidens that you're supposed to come to, like you weren't there for me. Yeah. And I think that's really cool because they they go out of their way in this movie to kind of talk about that. It's actually a really nice scene because that's stuff you don't really see a lot, especially in stories that are written by men. I feel like that's kind of a unique moment is this woman being like, I had all these feelings and like I wanted life to go a different way. And like when I needed hope. Like, you didn't show up for me. And that's really interesting because it's talking about, like, what does that mean for her? Like, what would it have meant for her to see a unicorn, especially when she was young in her life? And I think it is. Like, it is that yearning. Like, it means, like, that there's some, like, pure goodness that is out there. And if you can see it, that means it's, like, touched your life. So if you don't... You're, you're completely without that. And it then you probably feel really hopeless if you're looking for that or you're in a bad situation, you feel like you need that. And that's that's kind of an interesting take on what a unicorn could mean. Right, yeah, that kind of like the longing for something, like you can switch that into, you, you could get cynical about unicorns as you grow older because they become like a false prophet for you. Like they seem to be an answer to something but they're also like extremely elusive. So, and also like you're not supposed to touch them too. Like there's this idea that, you know, some things are to be like left alone in the world and the unicorn is one of them. This is this is one of those things with, there's like a lack of vision for this whole project because the body language of the characters around the unicorns, like you can watch this movie with the sound off and be like, oh, Molly's just touching the unicorn. Like out of all the characters, she should know that you don't just arbitrarily touch a unicorn. It's especially if you like have this like long relationship with the idea of the unicorn. So those are like those. I don't know if that's always true, though, because like in a lot of tapestries, 
Sorry for being a huge nerd. In a lot of tapestries, though, a lot of young women are touching them. Oh, okay. And I think there's significance to that. I actually wonder, like, do other people touch her? Because maybe it's special that she does. Yeah, maybe. I guess that'd have to be in the text of the book. I felt like the description of it in this book was that, like, you'd be wary of, you know, like, they're, you're not supposed to type of, or it means a lot to, like, make the choice to, or you need to be invited. But yeah, I would imagine it has to be. She obviously doesn't want to either. Like a man tries to tame her earlier because he thinks she's a horse and she's like, get out of here. (laughs) And she's pissed. And she's also offended because she can't, like he can't tell that she's a unicorn. And she's like, you think I'm a horse? Like, how dare you? But she doesn't let him touch her. She gets out of there real quick. I do like uh, Molly Grew. You know, now I'm kind of, I'm not taking back things I said earlier because what's done is done. But yeah, we've committed. That's <laughs> logged in the files. <laughs> Molly Grew is is the character I care about in the story. And, and I would have, because she's grounded, like she's just a real human, like she would be us in this world, right? Like we're not like wannabe yeah. magicians or we're like not kings or princes or butterflies even, really. No, and like, I think Schmendrick could be relatable in that he's kind of like a failure in a lot of ways. Like he has real magic, but he doesn't know how to use it. And he's kind of like a dork, basically. Like you find him and he's like working in a carnival as like a, like a magician, like a juggler and like a sleight of hand guy, not like I can do real magic. Um, So I can see that being relatable, I guess, but he doesn't, he's more of like a comic relief kind of dude. Like, he's like a well-meaning guy, but he doesn't. Molly Grew, I do. Even as a kid, I was there was something about her. Yeah. And I, she's a rare character. You just, again, you don't get a lot of, like, middle-aged female characters who just kind of are there in their own right. Like, she's not there for any real reason. She sort of just falls in with them because she doesn't want to hang out with Captain Gully anymore. Right. And because of the unicorn. And it's almost like she could care less if Schmendrick was there or not. Like, she really just wants to hang out with the unicorn and, like, finally have that unicorn adventure. And, like, everything about that is appealing. Yeah. If this story was to, you know, kind of, like, be done in a different way, I would want to just follow that character and have her, you know, the first time we see the unicorn is, like, through her instead of following the unicorn. Like, maybe that's my, like, narrative hang up with this whole thing is we're just tracking the unicorn. And I think this stuff all works fine in the book. It's more like, I'm surprised this was adapted. Like we were saying early on, we're like, oh, this is an interesting choice because I guess maybe it was like a, a buzzy novel at the time. Like it was, it's got a great title, The Last Unicorn, that rules. That title that is, a great is title. perfect. Like no wonder you would make a movie of it. And I'm sure it was a bestseller. Why else take the risk? And all this stuff about the the fantasy world of um, even the Red Bull is almost undescribable. Like these creatures are not meant to really be engaged with, or they're not even really meant to be brought into like human art. I don't think so. Be, like the way they're told in story, you know, like humans like try to own things in, in these different ways, and like one of them is to like render them in their like culture. But these animals don't want to be. And then if you take that idea and then you put it in an animation, you're kind of stuck because it's like, well, now you got to draw the fucking thing. And it's never going to be as magical as it is in that text. So it's it's just like a to me, like some of these fantasy cartoons, they're like an extra little artifact that goes with the book. It's like more to remind you of like what that story really is about. Because 
the Red Bull is looks great on the screen, but like described in the book, it's a lot more intense and therefore meaningful because of what it's supposed to represent is this like type of magical creature that's indescribable. I'm gonna have to reread this book. Yeah, I mean it's got great descriptive pack. Pa- it's got great descriptive passages, but it's also doing that Tolkien thing where it's like, well, here's a song on the page, and here's like a description that goes off on a wild tangent that doesn't really follow the plot. And if you love that sort of thing, like, you know, it's got a whole lot of that. It is not streamlined. Perfect. It does look kind of short, so. Yeah, right. So the tangents are brief <laughs> in, the, in that context. Not quite as intense as Lord of the Rings. Well, so we've talked about Molly Grew. Are there any other characters that are a standout to you or that warrant discussion? I mean, I certainly, I feel like maybe we should spend a little bit of time just talking about the unicorn as a character or like as not a character. Yeah, unicorn slash Lady Amal. Amalthea. Amalthea, which I think is, I want to say that's a reference to something, but maybe it's not. He just kind of pulls it out of thin air, but I'm sure that word comes from from something, right? It's a Greek myth It's a Greek mythology thing, and I'm going to Google it now. Google, Google, Google. Foster mother of Zeus. Yeah, the foster mother of Zeus, apparently. Um, This is interesting. So Amalthea is sometimes represented as the goat who nurtured the infant god of Zeus in a cave in Cretan Mount I guy on, I guess, maybe. But that's interesting. I didn't, I mean, it makes sense, honestly, especially because as we mentioned before, like medieval unicorns, not just the unicorn in this movie, but medieval unicorns, the design of them does tend to take a lot of obvious inspiration from goats. Like they have a lot of hair in places that goats have, or they'll often have like a little beard of hair. And, uh, They have, I wouldn't ever say necessarily that they have like a goat's tail, but it's certainly more of like a livestock's animal, like a livestock animal's tail. And sometimes it does straight up look like a little goat body with a narwhal horn, essentially. Uh, And cloven hooves is a big thing too. So like horses don't have cloven hooves. They just have the one hoof unit. But like deer and sheep and goats have the split hooves. And unicorns usually have that in medieval depictions. So really, they aren't horse-like at all. And they also are frequently shown to be pretty small. Like in the uh, unicorn tapestries, I think there's one, maybe not from like the iconic series of unicorn tapestries, but in medieval tapestries that depict unicorns with maidens, they're like about the same size. Like they could sort of fit in your lap, whereas a horse... If I walk up to a horse, like, my head is basically at, like, shoulder height. There are a lot of paintings and other depictions of unicorns where a maiden is just like, here is my lap unicorn. It's just, like, bigger than a dog, bigger than a goat, but not a horse size. Like, explicitly not adult horse-sized. So I do, I love the design of this unicorn in this movie. And to me, it really is like the Ur unicorn. Like she has this long whippy tail that I've always been like, this is what a unicorn's tail looks like. Seeing a unicorn that is just like a horse 
doesn't really, it just doesn't work for me, except for in Legend, which is great. <laughs> yeah, it's more like the practicality of how do we cast this unicorn, which is a shame. Like that, those are all good points because the unicorn should represent an, an aspect of extinction, probably like the way you have certain, like the, uh, I'm trying to think of a copy. What, what's the animal that's got like the zebra legs? You know what I'm talking about? And like the little oh, yeah. kind of giraffe antlers. It is Okapi, right? O-K-A-P-I. So like to describe a, a creature like that, it sounds like you're just making up like a mythical creature because the best way to describe it is take familiar creatures and just kind of patch them together. But it's its, it's, its own thing in the way like the unicorn is described as like a mix of different animals, but it's really its own thing. It's not a horse. It's like not a goat, but it like reflects these elements because it, you know, is part of this world. But it also recalls like, oh, extinction, like there's these variations of evolution that are just lost to us through time. And like the stories of the earth, like there's holes in that plot and like these creatures and animals represent that. So yeah, I like that you're saying all that because it does like the essence of the unicorn should be like there are holes in in nature's story. And every once in a while you can like catch a glimpse of like what was once here. And the unicorn is kind of that, like a fleeting glimpse of something lost on the planet. Tragic, sad. Yeah, I don't feel good about it. No. Now, when so she becomes a person and... The character kind of fades to the background a little bit. Like you get, she she becomes like really, I don't even know how to describe it because. I, she has a depressive episode, basically. Right. She, she instantly like <laughs> declares that she feels her body's dying, which makes sense because that that's just truth. She's like feeling every sense yeah, all at the same time, right? <laughs> it's so crazy. She says, I can feel this body dying all around me. And I was like, damn, that's a big mood. <laughs> yeah. How relatable. <laughs> She's got a couple like thematic lines. So that's her mortality line, right? And then she also has like kind of a coming of age line, which is the now that I'm a woman, everything has changed, which, you know, you can take that in a also million relatable. different directions. I think that's that line, I think, is part of the longevity of this movie. It's like you can, you can put, extract that and like just do what you want with it, right? And then there's like this idea of illusion throughout this whole movie, right? Like the witchcraft aspect, these animals, we can get back to the the midnight carnival in a bit, but the nameless unicorn says, I can't change anyone into something that they're not. I think she says that. Yeah, she, Schmendrick is ostensibly a real magician, but I think she doesn't believe him when he says that because he tries to cast a bunch of spells to bust her out of this cage and they don't right. work. Like none of them work. And uh, he's coming with her after he's busted her loose from this carnival jail. And um, she's basically like, what can I like give you to repay you? And he's like, I don't know. You couldn't give me what I wanted anyway. And she's like, yeah, no, like I can't make you a real magician. And she's like, I can't make you something you're not. And he's like, yeah. Oh, no, like that's not what I meant. But she's pretty blunt. That's something I like about her, too, honestly. So I do think something that's interesting about the character is that, and that maybe you're responding to a little bit, I think, at the beginning, is that she's very distant and kind of like otherworldly in this like unemotional way. Yeah. But I think that's sort of maybe, I mean, whether or not that's like a successful storytelling thing, whatever, is down to the individual. But 
I think that's what makes her interesting because like when she gets put into a human body, she's like, yes, like I can feel this body dying, like da da da. But she's also like, how could you do this to me? Like, this is so terrible. How could you do this to me? This is like the worst thing that's ever happened to me. And that's an interesting concept, Mm -hmm. especially if you're young, where (laughs) your whole deal is like figuring out life and whatever. And then so you don't even have a concept really of your own more like you're getting to know about that stuff. And then that's just like a cool concept to explore in storytelling in general is like, what does it really mean to be a mortal being like, you actually are really detached. And what would it be like if you were a un- like, what would a unicorn's experience be if you made them have to experience what it's like to actually be attached to what is going on around you? And then how re- like, like real it feels for that reaction to be like, this sucks. Like, you have done me a great disservice. And then she like totally melts down. Like, it's honestly kind of interesting that for ostensibly a like a family appropriate film that a lot of the back half of the movie is her like having an emotional breakdown because of like being violated (laughs) by having to do that and like having to experience all of these like earthly feelings that she just didn't have to be a part of before. Yeah. It's I like, she has no way out of the situation. She's pretty trapped. So is she kind of comes, seems to magically like come to terms with being human because there is a point where, she realizes that she's reflecting others in her eyes, which is before, like, you would only see nature in her eyes, which kind of brings up an interesting point because King Haggard gets so mad that he doesn't see himself in her eyes. Is that like part of an ownership of like this feminine figure? He's like, how come I can't control you? Like, how come like... We do need to talk. <laughs> we need to talk about King Haggard because he's a character that I don't exactly understand Mm -hmm. i don't know if it has to do i mean maybe it does have to do with kind of like like what am i patriarchal like control and and stuff like that but it's a little unclear so king haggard's whole deal is he like lives basically alone in this castle he specifically says he has four men at arms right four there's nobody else here (laughs) and he's got like his son who he adopted as a baby because he thought maybe being a dad would finally make him happy. And then he's like, it died really quickly. He said it was pleasant at first and it died quickly, which is wild. This guy just feels nothing. He's miserable. Mm-hmm. His name is King Haggard. He's not a fun guy. And he's his whole thing is like, the only thing that ever made me feel whole and complete is I happened to see unicorns in the forest and it changed my life so naturally i set out to make sure that the red bull rounded up literally all of them and forced them to live in the ocean under my castle so that they would always be mine Mm -hmm. and so like looking at the ocean is the only thing that makes me happy which is nuts um and so i don't really know first of all i'd like to unpack a little bit about what that means. Like, why is this person so unfeeling? And like, what does it mean for him to have this obsession with unicorns? Like, what is going on there? And then also with him interacting with Amalthea and getting upset about that, to me, it feels like he's waiting for her to finally admit to him that she's a unicorn because he thinks that she is one. Yeah. And when he realizes that he can't see the nature in her eyes anymore, that he can see himself reflected back, he's like... 
maybe I was wrong. So I'm going to lose my shit because this is the last one left. And this like meant something to me. Like I have to have all of them and like I have to win. And for that to like, it's just like a panic moment on his like on his part. Yeah. But I don't know. Like I don't have a strong theory of like what is underlying all of this character, like all of his motivation. I think it. I think he's just a symbol of uh, the need to control the things you care about and therefore like kind of crushing them. I actually happen, I have, I'm going to read a William Blake poem that I happen to like be dealing with in something anyway, but actually applies pretty well. It's only four lines. So it says, William Blake, poet, here's his poem. He who binds himself a joy does the winged life destroy. He who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise, which is basically just like the advice of, don't like hang on to the things you love, like appreciate them, but like let them go. Right. I think that's all King Haggard represents is the cautionary tale of like the pursuit of power is is like the path to evil because to control the world around you is to like put it at a distance. Like it's just it's a fruitless journey. And that's what he's done to the unicorns. I don't know why they're in the water exactly, other than maybe it's a Poseidon horse thing, which doesn't make sense even really. But I guess it's just a magic. I a always thought spell. I thought it had something to do with narwhals because. Oh right. Well, I mean the the, the connection visually is obvious. Yeah, and like you know everybody's seen a narwhal, right, guys? I don't know, but Google it if you haven't. I guess, but they basically have unicorn horns mm-hmm. uh, as like this tusk. That they have. And uh, the movie does call it out in a song. It's a song about, like, talking about where all the unicorns go. Which I just love that they made this band do a whole album about where unicorns are. That is so good. Um, But I think you see them, maybe? Or there are a lot of shots of the ocean with, like, Narwhals Lost at Sea is a line in one of the songs, like a lyric. Mm -hmm. And I... I think my sister and I like had this whole theory about how they were like narwhals in the ocean. And I think we just made that up as like a fan fiction way to explain what's going on there. But I mean, they do specifically mention it. So there has to be something going on there at the very least. Like maybe that was the inspiration for why they are in the ocean. Like maybe Peter S. Beagle saw a narwhal and was like, maybe unicorns all got driven into the sea. (laughs) Maybe it's something like that. Oh, okay. So maybe it's kind of the idea that if you ask the question, where have the unicorns gone? It's like, well, they're all in the ocean and part of it in this King Haggard. Yeah, like that could, a, I could see that being like a mythological explanation for where unicorns went. But the thing that I find really interesting about him is I can get behind the whole idea of like, this thing brought me joy. So like, I'm going to strangle it to death, like in an effort to have it close to me all the time. But also, like, what I find interesting about him is that he's so miserable, even before that. And, like, what that is supposed to be saying, like, this is just a man who literally derives no joy from anything at all. Like, he fires his court wizard because Schmendrick shows up and is like, hey, you should hire us because they're just trying to, you know, make ends meet while they poke around to find the Red Bull. And... King Haggard is like, okay, Mabrook, you're fired. And he's all like, okay, you're an idiot. See you later. Like, don't let the door hit you on the way out. Me, I guess. That doesn't make sense. Anyway, 
uh, he leaves, and, but he gets upset for a second, and King Haggard is like, a competent wizard hasn't made me happy, so I'm going to see if an incompetent wizard can do it. And it's like, he's just at the point where he's like, I'll try anything. Like, I literally don't feel anything right now. Like, do I want to be a dad, maybe? Will that bring me satisfaction? Nope. Like, it, just what is this dude's deal? Like, what is he supposed to be signifying that he is just like, is he just like the hollowness inside people like the potential to just derive no joy from like the inability to derive joy from your from the little things in life okay how about this is he basically like anton ego from ratatouille (laughs) i don't like unicorns i love them he had this magic moment from his childhood that he's still chasing and like that pursuit has kind of driven him disastrously mad like is it that is maybe. it that type of character, maybe? Like the critic? Well, I think, like the, the Yeah, could the you rational? almost argue that like his unicorn sightings were basically like his hit, first hit with like heroin or something? Yeah, he's like chasing And it like literally something. ruined, like changed the wiring in his body so that he no longer is happy in any other, which is terrifying. That's terrifying. I think so. I mean, it's a pretty common character type, right? Um, like Lord of the Rings has that too, like the Mad King because like just the burden of responsibility not that we don't know king haggard's life really i mean he did it is a great place for a castle even though his castle looks like hell he must have had it in an era of like prosperity i would think maybe the book i'm sure it goes into a bit more of his backstory because Schmendrick's trying to sell him on the idea of hiring them and he's like you should have like feasts and stuff and he's like i had all that i hated it like not fun so he's clearly has had that at some point, but he's gone out of his way to have nothing. It's another story like Lord of the Rings that seems to be in a way at the end of something like everything is pretty ragged and run down. Like there is still beauty in the world, but it's like elusive and we have to fight to preserve it. But all the characters are pretty destitute. Like they're they're all in just rags. <laughs> So it's it. I yeah, that's a good you know, point. Yeah, there's not a lot of one of those Middle Earths type of worlds. Okay, so that because I just brought up this kind of like where where we are the the Robin Hood element. I actually don't even know what we could ring out of this, other than I think it's very interesting that this character Captain Cully is like. I guess Robin Hood is basically his idol, right? And whether he is real in this world or not, I'm not sure. But he's like evoked as an illusion, which like draws him and his team away. So are we in like we're not on Earth? It, this is a stupid question overall. With if <laughs> with these types of stories, like we're not in like I grappled with this know. earlier too. Though remember, I, I started off being like, "Are we in Europe?" And it's like it's just not clear. Yeah, it's just not clear. Yeah, I guess we're just in a fairy tale, really, um, at the end of the day, is all there is to say about it. But I, I do like the bringing in another kind of literary character into this this story. It's a fun little game. Well, and it's I want to get into that a little bit because it didn't really strike me that much as a kid. Like, I think I always... This was the weird part of the movie to me for a couple reasons because we haven't talked about the booby tree yet either. And I'm looking forward to that. That's one of the most symbolically impactful moments <laughs> in this film. Uh, but yeah, this part was just kind of like... No real action is moving this forward. Like, so, like, childhood Caitlin is like, okay, like, let's get to the Red Bull. But it is interesting 
for them to go out of their way to include it. And I guess like it does just go along with the illusion reference here. And I, I don't know exactly if this movie ever is like saying something about that stuff, but it is thematically prevalent throughout. And like in this case, it's these people who are clearly in the depths of poverty when he brings Schmendrick to the camp, Molly Grew was like, great, like, I have to feed this guy, too. Like, are you kidding? And like, I already have to thin down the soup even more. And it's like rat soup, I think he says, which is terrible. They're just not doing well. These people are at the end of their rope. They live in the woods. They have nothing. They barely have enough food to live on. And this guy... I think this is like a sad sort of moment. It just doesn't quite land right. But when you think about it, it's really sad because he thinks of himself as the Robin, as Robin Hood character. We and my like my merry band of men, you know, we all like live in the woods and we're like, we're the heroes of the story and they all just want to have a better life. So when Schmendrick, Schmendrick, I think, is just trying to show off or something, but he let her, he just invokes the illusion of Robin Hood for no reason. Um, again, he doesn't have control over what he's doing. So he's sort of just being like, magic, do something. And Robin Hood shows up and everybody leaves. Like everybody just follows him because he walks through the camp with Maid Marian and like all of his like band of men. And everybody is like, oh my God, Robin Hood, like take me with you. Like take me out of this terrible place. And then Captain Cully gets pissed because he's ruined his fantasy idea, his like illusion to himself that he's the Robin Hood of the story. <laughs> and it becomes very obvious that like nobody wants to be here with you Nobody's happy where they are. All of that is just terribly depressing. Like, these are just people that want something better than what they have. Yeah. I guess that's like a lot of the characters are that. Like, Schmendrick wants something better than what he has. Like, that's Molly's whole deal. That's like the significance of the unicorn to her is that she, like, is really depressed and, like, sad by how her life has turned out. Yeah, I guess it, it. I mean, this is not much different than the conversation we were having with the breadwinner where like these stories are, um, what was the word I wanted to use? Great. They're, <laughs> these stories are like a coping mechanism in times of like distress, right? Because Captain Cully, he like struggles with the Robin Hood idea. He says some, what does he say? Okay, he says... What is this? This is not happening. Robin Hood is a myth. We are the reality. Magic is magic. But the truth is us, right? Like he's he's like so far invested in this character because of his situation, right? In the same way in The Breadwinner, these characters are telling themselves stories because like real life is beyond dealing with in that moment. And it, I guess it's like kind of a more whimsical take on that. It's like, where do we go when times are tough? It's like, well, we turn to the illusion. And the same thing, I mean, the theme pops up again in the Midnight Carnival, where all the audience are so like willing to like accept these illusions. Like, uh, I guess Mommy Fortuna is a, a good uh, wizard or witch. What is she, a witch, I guess? I think she's a, yeah, she's a witch. But it's like she's easily wrapped all these like people in these stories of these mythical creatures. Um, so it's like the first half of the movie seems to be like heavily on this theme of like the illusion of story when times are tough. I have a theory. Okay. <laughs> that has just now germinated in the depths of my skull. And I think, because I just think that this is what the movie maybe was going for, but didn't really connect at the end. 
Possibly. I wonder if this is corroborated by the book. There's no way of knowing. We'll never know. So I don't know. I'll, I'll have to reread it. But I wonder if the reason that we're seeing all of this is like supposed to be tied to the idea that all the unicorns are gone. Oh, okay. Because that seems like a common sort of theme in similar fantasy movies that when you repress something good, there are reverberations throughout the entire world. Like even legend has that sort of, it's like a lot more of a nuclear degree because if I'm not mistaken, when they cut off the horn of the unicorn, like the world freezes over. It becomes, it's like a dramatic change and all because of this one act and I think maybe that's what is supposed to be happening here. Because you're right. And I'd kind of forgotten that all the people that are at the carnival are like kind of destitute looking people in the same way that Captain Collie's group are. And they're all so desperate to see yeah. what's not there. So it's the same deal. Like they can't, a unicorn, wow, like, oh, like a manticore. And it's just like this like aged lion that doesn't have any teeth left. And all like all of these animals are like wounded and sad and sickly. It's like it's not real, but they just desperately need something to be invested in. And I do wonder, like they make such a fanfare of all these unicorns returning. I mean, there's like hundreds Mm -hmm. of them and that has to mean something. But we just don't get a chance to see what it is. Like we don't see an epilogue where, you know, what is Schmendrick doing? Like after the fact, many years later, we don't see any of that. Yeah, there's a lack of balance, I guess, is it is what it kind of comes down to. Like the world is unbalanced and like people turned in desperate times to to certain things to like fill that space. And the unicorn is that too, in the way that like the unicorn occupies a space that when you take it out, it's often filled with like villainy or like a demagogue or something. Like they they keep things at peace like they bring the harmony to the world but like when somebody messes with that like something jumps in to take up that space and it's often bad because it like longs to occupy like the stature of a unicorn or something uh these are like very abstract ideas but i guess that i mean that's the type of thing these like allegories deal with it's like just these big picture concepts whereas i feel like rats of nim also talks about similar ideas but it's kind of grounded with a little bit of a sci-fi angle and i think i personally find those stories like easier to connect to because it's like more clear because it's like contemporary society or like reality or like you know testing on animals like all these more like literal things whereas fantasy i'm often left a little adrift and maybe i'm i'm just not as good at being adrift maybe i need like more concrete answers and uh maybe that's part of like why i sound a little frustrated when i'm like trying to sort this movie out i'm like what ground me in something um that's that's just my it's a unicorn movie you get what you get (laughs) it's true yeah but I do like the, uh, and maybe the most grounded scene is that midnight carnival scene because basically it's like an economic scenario. I'm like, okay, I, I understand what's going on here. She's got the situation. She's got a banner. She's got branding. The stakes are she needs to make money <laughs> and she's selling this illusion. So I, I, yeah. I like the Mommy Fortuna scene a lot. Uh, and it's just fun to- You know what yeah, else? Go ahead. Sorry, uh, you know what else I like about this movie? Based on what you just said about 
like Mommy Fortuna and that scene is that like, unfortunately, this doesn't quite add up to anything in the whole of the movie, but that each character or several of the characters get these interesting moments about them that just make them interesting characters. And like, maybe that's something that makes this movie Mm. fun to watch for me. But like, like Mommy Fortuna is a great example because she, her whole shtick is having fake magic animals. Uh, She's just grifting off of people's money. It's literally a sideshow carnival. But she has the unicorn and she's delighted because nobody has that. Like nobody's caught. This is a huge deal for her. And not only that, but she has this harpy that she caught too. And it's a real harpy. And the harpy just exudes malevolent energy. And the unicorn says to her, like Mommy Fortuna comes to kind of gloat in the night. And the unicorn is like, you know, as soon as that harpy gets out, She's going to kill you and she will get out at some point. You can only hold her for so long because your magic is fake. And she even says like real things melt her magic. Like she can only do illusions. And if it touches something real, it's like antithetical to her magic. And uh, she's like, yeah, I know. But I still did this. Like, she'll never, this harpy will never forget me. And that's how I will live forever. And you're like, holy shit. Right. (laughs) Okay, that's awesome. (laughs) Like, you know, this is going to kill you. Exactly. You know, you're going to die. But it's worth it to you because it's such an achievement. And because you know, this harpy is immortal. So she will always remember you and you will always live on in that way. And like, even though this never comes up again in the movie, it's cool enough of a moment that you're like, damn. And then it does kill her. We see it happen. Yeah. And she knew it all along. I don't know if this... Yeah, I think that's pretty clear in the movie, right? Like her immortality is connected to like, I bring my death with me because like this this death will make me immortal. It's a very um like Western trope too as well. Like there's always... There's always like the figure that's like, I see how I'm going to die. And it's not like this type of thing. Like in these, another storytelling style that's like in destitute times, like, you know, the Wild West where there is no law and everything's like dusty and open and we're at odds with nature at all times. It's it's a cool character type to just like be on the edge of it. It's like they're not quite nihilistic exactly, but they... What they want above all things is to like live on in a story. And death is the is the way to do that, I guess. So Mommy Fortuna, pretty cool. Yeah, I like her. I'm trying and the Molly Grew moment is another moment that I that stuck out to me in the same way where she just like has this meltdown with the unicorn. And like that scene tells mm-hmm. you so much about that character. Like there's a little note on the Wikipedia page. I mentioned earlier when Peter Beagle is kind of just like editorializing about how he feels about the casting of the movie. And for Schmendrick, he said there's a note in there that says he was a little disappointed because Alan Arkin's approach to the character felt flat. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then conversely, he was like really jazzed about Tammy Grimes, who's the voice of Molly Grew, because he felt that she like added more to the character than he even expected. Mm -hmm. And he was like really excited by that. And I think that is pretty born out in the movie. Like, Schmendrick's just kind of a flat character, honestly. But, like, Molly Grew's whole 
you know, how how dare you even come to me now after like my whole life of waiting for you and you never showing up? Mm-hmm. Like that just feels like a real thing that's happening. That feels like a real person is like, what the fuck? And it's, it's like, she does a great job. Mm-hmm. And then that's something that like, even though Molly Grew doesn't do it that much either, really ultimately that makes her feel so much more memorable and like more of a rounded character. Yeah, it's exactly that thing I was saying where my hang up right from the get go is the unicorn seems to appear out of nowhere with no sense of like time, passage of time, whereas Molly Grew appears and instantly she's like carrying her past with her, which is like that. That's how you create a believable character, right? It's like give them the reality of like their the world that they've like come to that has brought them to this point right like that the ice the part of the iceberg you can't see basically on the flip side of that i don't have much to say about this just prince lear is like the most 2d character that's where i was going next it's it's time to get into prince lear (laughs) prince lear oh jeff bridges that's why i was like you would have done this for free what's the draw here like what's your line that's so what's the dialogue that like compels you I mean, I would have done this for free. You know why? Because there's a unicorn in it. Maybe Jeff Bridges just loves unicorns as much as we do, as I do. Now, you do you want to talk about the dragon that he fights? Like, what type of dragon is? Yeah, I exactly? do. Let's do it. Ugh. Dragon Corner. So yeah, well, we didn't. <laughs> oh, sorry. I just overshadowed Prince Lear with his epic dragon. No, no, no. It's not about that. It's about the dragon. I was going to say something that we were discussing when we were formulating that we were going to kick off this like four part series of like Rankin and Bass stuff was like, wait, do all these movies have dragons in it? Is this like a dragon themed thing? Like inadvertently? <laughs> True. And it, I think it's not ultimately because I don't think the Lord of the Rings, I don't think Return of the King has a dragon in it, but all the other ones do. So I feel like it's three out of four is close enough. But um, at first we were like, no, of course they don't. Like, Last Unicorn doesn't have a dragon, but it does have a dragon for like a second. Yeah. And it's because Prince Lear is an, uh, a nerd. Killing dragons isn't cool. No. I'm just, whatever. Whatever. Killing dragons is dumb. Dragons should kill you. We should just cede territory to dragon. <laughs> there aren't any dragons. Anyway, uh, he goes, he's trying to... Like, woo Amalthea, basically, because, I mean, honestly, probably because it's, like, the only human female that's ever showed up in his entire social sphere at any time ever. Like, there's literally nobody in this castle. Like, I do feel really bad for him. But he's just, like, trying. He's like, maybe I have to do, like, nightly acts of heroicism. And he rides out and he confronts and kills this dragon. And he brings this dragon's head back and he shows it to her. And she literally is just like, mm, like... Mm, like don't care doesn't say a word and then later there's a scene of him like hanging out with molly and he's like she just looked at me (laughs) (laughs) so like and then i felt bad for killing this dragon can you believe it and i was like yeah you should feel bad though she's a unicorn (laughs) literally killed like one of her brothers basically i don't know i have a lot of feelings about this because nothing comes of this and i understand that like killing dragons is a an established fantasy trope. Yeah. But I'm anti it. Yeah, you're against it. And um and the use yeah. the use of it here just to like win the heart, it's kind of it's it's a different in Wolfwalkers, the we talked a little bit about um like the Raphael 
fresco and how it's like, oh, we switch out the wolf for the dragon because the dragon in this case is imbued with like symbolic meaning of like Christianity. This dragon, it's interesting because now I don't have a whole lot of knowledge about dragons, but this one is a bit more of an Eastern style dragon than like the contemporary yeah, medieval yeah. dragon, which I think, I mean, that just might be a studio decision. They're like, fuck, we're animating here in Japan. We're going to like do our dragon. If you're just going to say animate a dragon, like it, we're going to make it our dragon. I don't know how it's described in the book. Really quickly to jump on what you're saying, if I am not mistaken, Flight of Dragons, which is the next movie we're going to be talking about, was animated by the same studio full of dragons, none of which look anything like the dragon that is in this movie. So it clearly was some kind of deliberate design choice. Like the dragons in Flight of Dragons are very Western and they're also like kind of, they got like a chunky body because there's this whole mechanism of like gas production that helps them fly that's like more important than wings. It's like this whole thing in there. But that is interesting that it's like, completely different design sensibilities and just for some reason in this movie it really does look a lot more of an asian inspired dragon design yeah it just really stands out is um because i feel like so many of the other characters are symbolic like the red bull i guess he i guess he's kind of like the king's familiar like he he kind of represents his wants and needs and but this dragon is just like a thing to be killed and that that's kind of it. It doesn't really seem to have it like any deeper significance other than like trying to impress a girl. Yeah, it's got to be on screen for like less than 30 seconds. Like it's barely in this movie. I have one thing I want to say about Prince Lear. Well, I have one thing that I just want to jokingly talk about. And it's his like stupid song oh, and how yeah. like his whole deal is that he loves this girl who he literally is constantly like, she's never said one word to me, but I love her. It's honestly kind of weird. Like, he's just absolutely lovelorn, and she could not care less, mainly because she's, like, shutting down, I guess, emotionally. Like, she's clearly, like, completely detaching from everything. She's processing, like, being in a human body and all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. But he is just like, I am determined to have her give me the time of day just once. And she's like, no thanks. And they have this whole song about it. And the funniest thing... Is there's one scene where he's singing this song about how he like loves her so much and he like wants to like blah blah blah. She's so pretty or whatever. And he's writing and he just writes like on a piece of parchment, I love you. <laughs> like he's gonna <laughs> give that to her as a note. And then he's like, Oh, stupid, you know, and he crumples it up and he throws it away. But I'm like, that's so dumb. <laughs> like you're just in here being like, Okay, so what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna write her a note. And I'm going to start it with just huge on the page, giant letters, I love you in cursive. And he's like, no, that's too obvious. I'll throw that in the trash. And I'm like, what are you doing? And it's just so corny. I just don't know, like, who, somebody had to storyboard and, like, animate this whole part. And it's just so cheesy. This song, I'm not sure if it's an exception here. And I'm, I'm pretty sure this is true. But this is in the book. Like, Peter S. Beagle wrote these lyrics. At like to the tune of another song, Peter. which um, and it, it's funny because it's like, oh, Prince Lear is so like verbose and lyrical. But then if you give him a pen, here's what he writes down on paper. But, he, but also you say so verbose and lyrical, but there's a scene in this where he's like trying to write a poem for her. And he's like, boss, moss, 
was like trying to think of words that rhyme with the other sentence and i'm like but then when he's you're bad at things like just stop but when he's singing he, he says things like the years drifted over like clouds in the heavens and the ladies went by me like snow on the wind so it's like well where's that yeah, that sounds nice where's that when you go to write <laughs> he's like she's just too hot i guess like you know <laughs> sometimes you meet somebody that's so hot that you're just like i love you yeah. And I guess this is just, uh, you know, again, like it's an ingredient of stories like this. There's a prince and he loves like the maiden and therefore this ensues. So it's it's fine. Like, I don't know. It's like with theater. I'm, I can't be mad that there's a song in a, a musical. Are we watching a musical? I guess we not, in, once the, the third act kicks in, we're there's kind of... There's enough songs being sung by the characters that I do think it has to qualify, right? I think it has to qualify. I guess. It's just a hybrid movie, I guess. <laughs> it's just breaking all the barriers. <laughs> Lear sucks, I guess. Like, I didn't realize, like, I don't like him. And, like, their love is a big part of the story in that eventually she does believe that she has fallen in love with him too basically no on-screen time is given to this it's just sort of like i love him now i do that i love him and it becomes a sticking point where amalthea doesn't want to turn back into a unicorn because she's like too she's like too far gone i think is the thing you're supposed to sort of feel like she's lost it a little bit it doesn't feel like she's making a rational decision it's like she's afraid to confront the red bull she just doesn't want to deal with it it would be easier if she could just get married to prince Lear and like forget about the whole thing uh obviously that doesn't happen it's just like for that to be such an emotional impact on the character at the end there's nothing about they don't have a relationship no like it's just not there is nothing about these two characters that it's like they're in love and I care about this. Like, there's no point where you're like, yeah, you should definitely stay human and just marry the prince. You're like, no, like, be a unicorn. This is stupid. I mean, maybe is this movie up to the challenge? Like, do you think they could have pulled that off? If, I know it's not in the story, but I just it gets me thinking about movies that excel at this sort of thing like the little mermaid, like the little mermaid. You're like into that story and you could describe it. And it sounds ridiculous in the way the kind of like last unicorn story is ridiculous. It's like pure fantasy. Like you can't have fish fins and then legs all of a sudden if you sell your voice to like a sea witch. Like that's crazy. But you're there for that arc and that emotional journey. This one, I I guess it's like the team is just not strong enough to like pull that off. Like the money's not there to give you like the emotive feels of what's a pretty tragic broken love story, right? It's like they're... They almost aligned, but it it just wasn't really meant to be. Like, there's probably a a nice, bittersweet version of that to tell on screen if you could pull it off. But it's just not. It's just not going to happen. I just don't know, too. Like, I just don't know that they cared about that. I don't think that was the point of the I movie. Guess, yeah. I think it was just like, it was a plot. But on it, like, I think there was a reason that they made the unicorn the character. But that means that they're choosing to not be invested in certain emotional parts of it. Like, ultimately, it's just it's about unicorns. And so like stuff like that happens in the plot, but like, isn't that important to whoever was making this? I think I'm guessing. And they just don't. They're interesting moments, but they're not like we want you to feel invested in their relationship. Like maybe they didn't like maybe they just didn't really care about that. Yeah, I'm interested to unpack a bit more of the Rankin-Bass agenda, just in terms of like 
Because some of these things could be resolved with just a shot, like a second or two of animation, like a look in the eyes or like a facial expression that, that would like open that door and be like, understand this is how this character feels. But this movie doesn't really get that intimate, even when there's an action scene. Like there's there's the great scene. I wouldn't say it's great because I don't I don't I don't get into it as much as I would like to. But where the unicorns all return from the water and they like take form again and they like devastate the castle. We never really get a great good close up of that devastation going on. It kind of cuts around it and the, the unicorns move in this big like flowy form. But we're never like in there getting that satisfying like action moment with it, really. Like we get a good shot of like the death of the villain, of course, like you got to invest in that. But I just don't know, and I'm curious to find out, like, are these guys good at, you know, directing action or directing romance or, you know, some of these little beats, or are they just sort of middle of the road filmmakers in general? And they just pick material that we like, you know, we'll see. That's a good question. I really don't know where it's coming from a lot of the time when they're doing stuff, but maybe it's just like, I don't know, the flavor of stuff. Like to some degree, I feel that way about like fantasy in this time period that the story was written, a lot of it does seem more about like the flavor and just like telling a story than it is about like these big impactful moments. Yeah, true. It's like, it's almost like the, the stories aren't trying to like speak to the time as much, which maybe is why yeah, I don't think they are choices are, you know, they're just sort of there. They're like, all right, well, we're going to get a band. Here's a band that's, Within our budget, they're, they were used to be popular in the 70s, but hey, it's 82, let's, let's get them. They got time. And it just kind of adds up to something that's enjoyable, but it like really doesn't tell you what it was like to be there in like 1982. <laughs> I don't know. Well, it does in a certain sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. But yeah, no, I don't think they are. Honestly, too, I doubt, I bet that whoever got America on this was like very excited about that. Yeah. I bet they were. And like, I think that is something that is interesting to pick apart about this stuff. It's like, there are a lot of artists out there that just don't, it's like, it's not a timeless sensibility and it's not like a, like a visionary sort of thing. It's just people making decisions based on their interior or Mm -hmm. whatever. And I think that's sometimes where you get stuff like this too. Yeah. Like it just a little bit feels like. I'm trying to think of like what situation I would be in if I would do something like this. But like maybe you're just at a point in your life where somebody gives you the authority to do that, to like get a band on a movie or whatever. And you just be like this. And you're not necessarily thinking about anything else. It's like, well, I love that band, you know, like that's that was a good band, whatever. Or like, I don't know. Sometimes people are just out of touch too. Before we go, another sort of, odd choice in this movie uh is like yeah i have two more odd choices i want to talk about before we wrap well i suppose we start with the busty tree right like this this character that doesn't really exist as it is in the book i have three things the tree isn't in the book no the tree is in the book but it's not a busty tree Mm, well maybe it was (laughs) you know if they don't (laughs) undescribed it was indescribable yeah that's true (laughs) Yeah, it was, you gotta see this tree. <laughs> Hachimachi. I, I don't have a lot to say about the tree. I mean, 
it's actually a pretty well it's like a well animated scene, I guess. And maybe it's just one of those things where like, all right, let's get some <laughs> uh, titillation here for the adult audience. Is this like an early choice when they're like, this is going to be a grown up fantasy movie. And here's what grown ups like. <laughs> okay. It's so unsexy though. It's truly foul. Well, you know, we, we I don't know. Well, I would say, and I'm just, I'm not too well versed in like 70s underground comics with an X, but I would think they're a little older. So maybe they grew up with weird, sexy 70s comics. And this is maybe trying to throw a little bit of that flavor in here, because I think you and I are of the generation where cartooning is like more playful and kid friendly and some of the adult weirdness and perversion that had built up the underground scene had been totally like neutered out of the the work we were taking in but this is a rare occurrence where it's like oh hey hey kids don't forget that comics like in cartoons can be kind of sexy oh, wow. <laughs> i don't know and i do kind of like is the point that they were trying to make with that because i don't know i'd have to look at this scene in the book to know what is even going on there at all like in the origin of the story but i do like the only thing i can think of is that so Schmendrick casts a spell, turns the tree into a booby tree, which is great, I guess. I don't know. He's not excited. He kind of freaks out because she's like putting the moves on him, which, God, this is the worst shit ever. <laughs> this has to be coming out of left field for anybody who's listening to this, like who hasn't seen the movie before. Like, by the way, there's like a weird and it, just Google it. If you haven't seen it, like you got to you got to check this out to know what we're talking about. Um, but he does get upset and he like screams for the unicorn. And like, I kind of wonder if this is like, cause unicorns are all about like innocence and stuff. Right. And it was always, they don't say this in the movie, but in like historically it was always like virgins, like being a virgin was like a big prereq to being, to having a unicorn encounter. And that was like, if you're trying to hunt a ah, unicorn, okay. you would like have like a virgin maid, like be out in the woods as a lure kind of. Cause like they ain't interested in like anything else. There's something kind of like religious about that. I haven't ah. investigated that too much. I do wonder how much of that is like Christianity kind of getting into it. Um, but I wonder if that's supposed to just be like to touch on the unicorn myth and they just didn't want to do any other like involve actual human sexuality in there. I don't really know because he literally is like, get me out of here. Like he's not having a good time in the titty tree, which I that makes sense to me. What doesn't make sense to me is why it was in the movie at all. Like it really even as kids, like we were like, this is not right. <laughs> like We both knew it was not right. It just doesn't. It doesn't quite fit, or it doesn't feel like it fits. I mean, maybe it fits perfectly. Uh, yeah. It totally doesn't. Totally, it's very questionable, visually as well. Yeah, I think it's just... She's so creepy. Yeah, I think it is just playing with that idea of, um, like, innocence and, like, what do you when you run up, like, a woman with experience, like, what happens when, like, this innocent character runs up against that? And uh, he denies the call if this is a hero's journey story. (laughs) The denial of the call, indeed. (laughs) Yowza. All right. So you were saying you got a couple more points, unless you have more on on the tree. No, I think I'm ready to part ways with this tree, for God's sake. What a horrible thing. Google it, though, if you haven't seen it. Anyway, um, so one thing is just sort of more of a comment than a question 
is this ca- the cat, the character of the cat uh, yes. that is like pivotal to them figuring out how to get into the Red Bull's lair. So the end game of this movie. Yeah, the riddle cat. Yeah, essentially. But I was like, when you were talking about like tropes and fantasy and stuff, like maybe this is just a part of the story that made me think of the cat because I was like, it really does feel like he's just there because that's something that is in these stories. Like he's like a fantasy mystery cat and like he also can't speak plainly because cats are just like tricky that way right (laughs) he's also cute as heck like we had a cat when i was a kid that looked a lot like this cat so i just have a fondness for him anyway he has a little eye patch for no reason and he speaks kind of like in this pirate sort of brogue he he says something snarky for no reason, and that's what like opens the conversation. He's just like passing Molly Grew in the hallway, and he's like, mm, "She's a unicorn" or something like, yeah. like that. You're like, okay, what? And so she ends up asking him. Like Molly Grew is like, okay, how do we get to the Red Bulls thing? And he get yeah, he gives her a riddle that like when the wine drinks itself, which is freaking hilarious. Like talk about that in a second. Um, but she's like, why can't you just tell me? And he's like, I'm a cat. Yeah, we just don't give straight answers, basically, he says. Yeah, like, no cat anywhere ever gave anyone a straight answer. And then he, like, has his eye patch and he, like, swaps eyes and, like, both of his eyes are fine. And, like, why does he have this eye patch? It's just, like, a mystery character. But he is cute. The uh, the cat in the book is a normal cat. He doesn't have a peg leg and an eye patch. So that's a little extra Rankin and oh, Basque. Yeah, he has a peg leg, too. That's that extra Rankin and Basque touch that... uh everybody's yearning for so bizarre super cute yeah it's cute it's just like an extra weird little like grimy flavor in the story because he's kind of uh like a a bit of a don bluth looking kind of cat to me like it's just kind of a he is there is a weird amount of don bluthiness in this movie like now that i'm thinking of it um but that is a perfect segue to the the, the last thing i guess And that's the skeleton at the (laughs) end that I wanted to talk about, which in similar fashion, like a lot of the ending of this movie, it feels very random. In fact, a lot of the things that happen in this movie feel like just disparate elements. Like, I guess they have like a quest flavor. So on a quest, you encounter a bunch of different stuff. But other than that, there's no real cotton like holding any of this stuff together. Mm And the skeleton is basically the what the cat, they find out somehow. You don't get any cool scenes of them like brainstorming together, no. trying to figure out what the riddle means. They just are like, oh, it's this skeleton that happens to be down here in this hall. And it's this dead ass skeleton that comes to life at a certain time, I guess, of day. And he's creepy as all get out. And he talks and he's weird. And what they have to do, I don't even really understand what's going on here. But um, I guess to get him to to tell them the secret of how to get to the Red Bull, they have to pretend to give him wine because they don't actually. Yeah, it's very convoluted. It's just played for a gag, I guess, because he's he's like losing his mind during all this. Like, yeah, it doesn't make sense when you try to explain exactly what he's doing and why it works. Yeah, like, why is he down here even in the first place? Like. There is something Just a classic dungeon skull, I guess. Yeah. Well, but it's like this is a guy's house. Like you're in a guy's castle that he lives in and there's just a dead body and he's like up on something. He's like up off the ground. Yeah, he's on the mantle of a fireplace, I guess. Yeah. 
something and he's just hanging out up there and it's like, what? And I guess there is a lot of like kind of hellish imagery in the castle and even besides this, but just in like random shots where characters are walking around up and down staircases, there are like these little demonic figures that are carved into the walls, just like creepy little faces Mm -hmm. and like, yeah, little demons and stuff like that. So I guess this is supposed to be more of an exuding a little bit more of a metaphorical, like you're in the belly of the beast type thing. The Red Bull obviously has some of that like satanic, you know, dungeon imagery going on with it. But it is very odd that there's just a skeleton down here. And at certain points, he magically wakes up like he doesn't need to be. He's not literally a piece of the puzzle that they have to solve. He's not. He just gives them information that like he doesn't need to. to for them to exist um so but schmendrick i guess tricks him into telling them the secret by pretending to turn a bottle of water into wine by drinking all of the water and handing him an empty bottle which it doesn't make a lick of sense and this is supposed to remind this like alcoholic skeleton about what it was like to be alive i guess he like pretends to drink it and is like this is amazing it's very odd yeah Uh, And then he tells them, like, you just need to walk through the clock. And if you walk through the clock, it's a magic portal that takes you, like, under the castle to where the Red Bull is. And that's that's the solution. All of this is nonsense. But the main thing that I really just wanted to mention here is I think this thing is fucking terrifying. And uh, when they go to walk through the clock, Mm -hmm. uh, he, like, freaks out. Yeah. Uh, And, like, this whole time he's been kind of annoying but, like, very affable and, like, just kind of, like, joshing around with them. And when they go, he's like, oh, but you can't take the unicorn with you. And, like, his eyes glow red and he starts screaming for Hagrid to come. And I, like, that haunted me as a child. And it's just one of those things that, like, all good movies, I guess, are, when you're a kid, are movies that just, like, absolutely (laughs) scare the pants off you at least one point that you, like, legitimately are disturbed by it. Mm -hmm. And this thing just like yelling and like being a skeleton and being everything before that, too, is fine. It's only when he starts freaking out that a kid me was like, I'm like, my life is over. Like, this is the scariest thing I've ever seen. (laughs) Yeah, your cartoon has betrayed you, basically, which I guess is the trick it's playing. Because you see that in cartoons every once in a while where like the friendly character suddenly has a flip and it's a villain, which I guess like just shows you the stakes for your friends in the story you're like oh yeah cartoons can be scary they're not just like they're not all friendly and nice it seems to be like that's that's what they're doing with it because in the book first of all it's just a skull it's not a whole skeleton that's like a, a little extra bit going on there and i don't know if he has a moment exactly like this it almost seems like the plot needs to be like well we got to get king haggard down here so like how do we do it oh we have the skull yeah and i might be totally wrong i might like be misremembering but it could just be a way to trigger the next scene (laughs) but it's effective i mean like it's so over the top yeah i think it is it's just like all right like shit's going down now because haggard just comes down and like destroys the clock basically which i don't see how that's helpful to anyone but it is like a scary like you know, oh, we've, like, turned a corner. Like, there's no going back from here now. He's, like, got his sword out, and he's, like, trying to fight Schmendrick, and then he they all escape through the clock, and then he ends up just, like, bashing it to pieces, basically, with his sword. It, yeah, we're kind of, like, moving all the pieces around uh, a board that has no, like, grid on it. Like, to me, 
it's kind of a big jumble of where things are going and when they're going there or where anything's standing. Like when Prince Lear valiantly steps in front of the Red Bull to like save the unicorn, that would be like me stepping in front of a car to protect you. It's like, I don't know if that's heroic. Please exactly. Don't. Yeah, exactly. It's like, it's just kind of a strange move. <laughs> and then it. Lear is done though. Like we have. He's not very And the camera cuts away, so you're actually like, wait, did the bull hit him? He's just lying on the ground all of a sudden. It's like, is this the death of our hero? Yeah, you don't get the impact. Like, it doesn't seem like anybody really making the movie is invested in most of these characters. (laughs) Like, there's a better way to deal with this scene. This (laughs) this is not quite it. (laughs) No, he's fine. You know what, though? I'm having this... Because this was based off a book... It can't be this, but what is occurring to me seeing this, and maybe it influenced the movie in some way, somehow, but it it reads like a D&D campaign, actually. Yeah, totally. It's like I don't know how much experience you've had, like, actually playing D&D. Not a whole lot. Have you ever played Uh, A little bit. Not in a long time, though. Not in, like, the newer editions, that's for sure. Yeah, and, like, I don't know, like, I've only really played in the past few years, so and I'm, there's so many different varieties, like, iterations of D&D and other role-playing games, but, like, the basic commonality, I feel like, in a lot of them is that you're playing together, so it's almost impossible to actually, like, if you're just actually playing the game, to, like, tell a coherent story, People do that now on like all these different podcasts and it's amazing. But a lot of that is like more improv than actually playing this game by the rules. So it has this veneer of storytelling. Right. But because so much is dictated by randomness, it becomes more about weird stuff and like set pieces and also allowing for solving problems in weird ways. So like when I see this skeleton down here, that it plays out like it's a and d yeah. thing because it, it almost reads like... Which it can't be because all of this is like made by, you know, people who are choosing what to put <laughs> on the page or like what VO to record and all of this stuff. But in a D&D campaign, you could be like, okay, like I have this whole puzzle where they have to like figure out this word puzzle with a skeleton that will give them the key to go through the store or whatever. And then while you're actually playing, somebody does something that totally shortchanges your whole idea that you had. And so you have to... You know, it's be a good DM. You have to like concede in some way mm-hmm. or eliminate a part of that. And that's what this movie sort of feels like. And even with like Lear jumping in front of the bull, that's very D&D-esque and like, I'm going to try this <laughs> and then it just doesn't work. Right. And so if you're reading a book, it feels totally wrong. Yeah. But if you're playing the game, it totally makes sense. And then it's fun because you're all involved in what's happening. And I do wonder if some of this type of fantasy stuff is born out of... Some of that, where people are like living in these fantasy worlds and writing pieces of story that aren't really an actual story. Yeah. And that's sort of like where all of this is coming together. And the reason, I think the reason they're not is because there is no growth in like the characters we're theoretically following. So when the the skull starts to go on as like thematic rambling about like, oh, wine, a thing I used to know, death, mortality. Like it is thematic and it fits the flavor of the movie, but he's not actually talking with the characters. They learn nothing really from him other than to like 
physically go to the next space. Like so many of the good lines in this story are just sort of said to the audience. They're not said to the other characters. So like at the end when uh, Schmedrick is like, he's got a great line. He says, she will remember your heart when men are fairy tales in books written by rabbits. Of all unicorns, she is the only one who knows what regret is and love. He's just talking to the fucking camera. He's not saying that to another character. So like, so I think that's kind of like the thing to me that speaks to like what you're saying, this like frustration of like, these are just a bunch of segments. And like, this is a game with mechanics of story, but they're, they're bouncing off each other, but they're not like engaging with each other. So therefore it doesn't really add up to anything because like they don't, they're not fusing together in like one big cohesive thing. It's just like. Oh, here's a little of this and a little of that. And um, is it this fun? We like unicorns. We like dragons. This prince sucks. The end. He's not great. Yeah, but I mean, like there are there are good lines, and there are there is like fun to be had. But to like create characters that engage with each other, I think that's that thing. I'm like, you gotta like mature as a storyteller a little bit to like add that element. But there are a couple scenes. I mean, we were talking early on, not to like. And on a sour note for this movie, but like the Molly Gru stuff, they are talking there when they first meet. But I think we're just in this climactic fight scene or like we have plot we have to move through. And suddenly like things just aren't really like locking in in interesting ways anymore. Yeah, it's just it's another movie that just sort of ends. Yeah. <laughs> like I guess in the book... The 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 only real difference there, I think, is the unicorn doesn't actually appear to them. It like comes to them in a dream to kind of resolve their feelings about it. But uh, that's like really the the only big difference. But I guess a lot of these fantasy stories like end with characters just kind of going off, right? It's like kind of a yeah. I'm trying to remember now to think of like parallels though, because I was like in Lord of the Rings, like they sort of do that, but isn't it kind of like a metaphor for dying? Yeah, it seems to be more. satisfying but uh you know that's because that's like a a better author at their at a different point in their career i think to step out of the story a little bit he just kind of has a better sense of of it i mean was peter s beagle in a war like tolkien was i don't know probably not maybe (laughs) i don't know i mean i don't like i would never say i think like, oh, you're just, like, not, like, evolved as a storyteller or whatever. I mean, people have different priorities in what they're saying. And, like, some of the stuff that bothers you in general about storytelling doesn't bother me as much. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, I agree with everything you're saying about the story. But I also don't, it just doesn't bother me. And, like, part of me is wondering, like, is the value of movies like this and why so many people see it as a kid, and then really retain a love for it is like, maybe it's just, it's less that like, oh, this isn't strong storytelling and more that like, this is a great story for kids who are going to grow up to be creative people as an introduction to like many different concepts. And a lot of it is like purely visual, but it has a lot of this really specific fantasy flavor in it 
touches on a lot of different things. Like the characters being interesting or not. And again, like some of the characters aren't interesting. And then some of the characters are really interesting. Like, I feel like that's all really valuable for this like plastic child brain. And there's something about it. Cause I honestly feel like Secret of Nim is the exact same way. Yeah. And it, it really takes me, I haven't seen anybody say this about this movie, although I'm sure people do feel that way. But it brings me back to that like blog post that I found when we did Secret of Nim that somebody was like, if you didn't see this as a kid, like you, you're not going to like it. And I was like, I, I kind of feel like that's probably true because it doesn't make any sense. Like that movie doesn't make any sense, but that doesn't mean that it's bad. Yeah. And I also, you know, I don't know that it's guaranteed either, you know, that you wouldn't like it as an adult, but it's like, it's just not going to be the same. And there are certain things that you're more, you're going to be more stricken by as a kid before you've had all of these different, you know, other experiences and like things to compare things. You're more knowledge about stories and other things. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Like I, I didn't really do it with this one, but you know, I often like to decide early on who the audience for the thing is just so I don't start to like get negative on something. But to me, what I want is I want like a at this age, like I want the story to evoke a conversation when you're young. I think it's more about absorbing, like you're kind of passively taking these things in. And in that sense, like I think the last unicorn, I'm glad I saw it as a kid and I'm glad you did it. I'm glad everybody else did because it's touching on a million different interesting ideas that are going to pursue your mind to like look at the source material or like, you know, look to fantasy history and like myth and where all these stories come from, because it's, it's just kind of like introducing you to a bunch of different ideas. But now I almost find myself like struggling to like know what to say about this because I don't have a lot. I don't have a lot of conversation I want to have about this specific story because I don't think there's a lot of places to go with exactly what it's trying to say other than like the tropes that you and I are just so well versed in that it's like, well, we don't even have to say that because like we've already like talked about this sort of thing before. Whereas like, you know, like with at the breadwinner, I thought we got to a like really magical place where you and I were both like, oh my God, are we, did we just watch a masterpiece? And I think part of that is like, <laughs> because it drew this like fantastic conversation out of us. And in my mind, I was having that fantastic conversation with myself about the last unicorn when I was a kid. And that's like, preserved there and that's what makes this movie like special and magical right it's like those conversations that it drew you to have with yourself when you were a kid yeah i do i think that is that like i was thinking again too like all of rankin bass movies i feel like you could pretty safely say are like culty movies if they have a following at all and again too to me like knowing a movie is considered a cult classic going in like means i'm gonna have a weird experience that like i might not like <laughs> yeah or I might, but it's like, you're not going to watch another Lord of the Rings when you go in to watch a cult classic movie, right? Like, it's just obviously already not that. Like, there's something about it that clearly a lot of people love it, but it, like, is never going to find this, like, massive audience because it just doesn't have those hallmarks or whatever. But I love that conception of it being, like, 
it just makes me think of like when you're a kid, you want to live in all of these worlds. And to me, like this was a world that you would want to live in as a kid when you watched this. Like that's what was so good about it. And then it lets you kind of fill in a lot of blanks or think about different things. And so it's not so you much. Also were saying, yeah, like I don't think this. Sorry, I want to add before you go further. Like you had your sister, your yeah, sister yeah. there with you too. Like you were saying early on, you're like, oh, this is. I mean, that's a big part of it too, right? Like, yeah, I would say that for a lot of the movies that we grew up with too. Like I, a lot of the '80s movies that we liked were like that, but we also just hung out a lot. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. We read a lot of the same books, so we did. We shared a lot of stuff like that and had really similar tastes obviously (laughs) but yeah so and again like when we were kids we would like do like play pretend on a lot of different stuff and especially like a lot of stuff that we like movies and like cartoons and stuff that we liked so all of that is a good jumping off point for doing that it's all just about like the cliche i guess of like fostering child imagination and stuff like that like a lot of these movies are really perfect for that Again, I know we're talking about Secret of Nim so much, but like, it's the same thing with that movie. Like, it's so evocative that even if it doesn't always narratively make sense, like, it doesn't really matter, especially if you're a kid because you're wanting like fuel for that. Like, you need to see things and like feel the weird feelings of like weird stuff in those movies and then like react to that in whatever way that you do. That's just that's like part of like a like a creative growing process, I guess. That's all for Meow. Join us next week as we consult the great oracle of antiquity in Rankin and Bass's other 1982 animated fantasy epic, Flight of Dragon. Do you think anybody remembers you were a cat in the, the little intro bit? They better. Okay. I put a lot of effort into embodying this role. I loved it. Yeah. So while you're waiting to see what Caitlin turns into next week, you can check out our episode archive and other facts at cartoonfeelings.com. You can also tweet at us or join us on Instagram. Both of these are found at Feeling Cartoons. That's true, Ira. And if you have thoughts and questions... Uh, aside from those social media platforms, you can write us at cartoonfeelingspodcast at gmail.com. And if you are enjoying it, we would be super grateful if you would consider taking the time to rate us on Apple Podcasts and or leave a review and share us with your other animation cartoon feeling friends. And their cats. And also their cats. Any animal, really. That's true. Yeah. Frogs. Unicorns. Manicore. Dragons. Manicorn. <laughs> That's where my head's at. Hobbits. Hey, hobbits aren't pets, are they? Well, I'm just saying in addition, like <laughs> okay. anyone, really. All right. Uh, well, that, that concludes that list. <laughs> That's all, folks. See you next time. Meow. Yeah.